So excited about being a Jet. Yeah, so excited about it. And I'm very, very excited about it. I was really excited. I'm excited. When, again, I was excited about it. And that would be exciting for me. And so I'm excited to be a Jet. And I'm excited to be here. And I'm excited. It's an exciting thing. It's just exciting. And I'm excited about the opportunity. He was excited. And he was excited about working with me. And I'm excited about working. excited about that opportunity. I'm excited about I'm excited about that. You know, I'm excited about my name, and I'm excited about, you know, I'm excited about the opportunity, and I'm excited about my future. You know, how exciting it is. I'm excited to be a Jet. Um, excites me. I'm excited, and that was exciting. Just excited that I'm here in power, and I'm excited about it. It would have been exciting, but, you know, this is exciting, and I'm, I'm and it's ex it's exciting for me. They are pretty excited. So, you know, I'm excited, and I'm excited to be on this football team, and excited to have, and that's exciting. It's that I'm excited about being a Jet, and excited about the support, and I'm excited about being a Jet. I'm, I'm just excited to. I'm excited about excited about it. And, all right, thank you all. God bless. I don't know about you, Don, but it's been a while since I've been this excited about doing a podcast for our listeners as I am today. I'm just very excited. Yeah, uh, Tim Tebow's pretty excited, too. It is March 27th, 2012, Season 2 of the Sportscasters, Episode number 12. I am the host, Steve Bennett. My co-host is Don Russ. Uh, very excited, Don Russ, today. <laughs> and uh, we have a great show lined up for you today, which is why we're so excited. We have on the podcast Jonah Carey from the Grantland website and the author of the Extra 2% former book club book of the month is on the show today to start what will be a multiple week preview of the baseball season. I can tell you now that Jane Levy will join us next week to continue the discussion about the beginning of the baseball season. But also on the show today with Jonah Carey is Tim Layden, senior writer from Sports Illustrated. He's been covering the NCAA basketball tournament for them. And he's going to call us later today live from Lawrence, Kansas, where he is interviewing the Jayhawks for a story about the Final Four, which will be Saturday and Monday of this week. Also on the show, Roy McGregor uh, will join us. Roy is the author of what has been the Sportscasters Book Club Book of the Month, Wayne Gretzky's Ghosts and Other Tales from a Lifetime in Hockey. And really, this show is stacked, Don. Stacked. Yep. So let's not let's not even waste any time. Let's just do it. Let's do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. Alright, look. Uh, we typically do separate three things. That's a total of six things. Three times Not two. lately. <laughs> no, but uh, lately, the NFL has just come out with more and more seemingly really important and... Uh, newsworthy items the nfl it, won't stop yeah this week was no exception yeah the saints got handed down their Ugh. their punishments and Ouch. It, it was harsh it was that was the point i guess yeah i'll run them down real quick yep. greg williams is out indefinitely uh sean payton out for the season 
The Saints are going to lose two second-round picks. And Mickey Loomis, the general manager, is out eight games. Joe Vitt, assistant head coach, six games. Yeah, they haven't done anything with the players yet. That's still to come. And I guess the name that potentially is the most damaging will be Jonathan Vilma. Although the Saints did compensate for that a little bit by signing former Atlanta Falcons middle linebacker and one of my favorite all-time Oklahoma Sooners, Curtis Lofton. Oh, okay. So I was really excited about that. Look at uh, the word is that the Saints were still lying to the commissioner as soon as March. Oh, really? Um, and that's a big reason why the suspensions were as big as they were. We've talked about how in this case a Saints fan could maybe complain that this you is know, probably happening This everywhere. is happening. Why are we getting in trouble to this extent? The reason is because of the cover-up. That's why the Saints are being punished to this extent. Sure. And I wrote about this. You can find my reaction on ProPlayerInsiders.com. And I think that although the penalties are harsh and we don't know what the uh, what players will be suspended, I assume Jonathan Vilma is going to miss some time and maybe Roman Harper will miss some time too. The investigation is supposedly still ongoing too, so... Greg Williams' other teams aren't necessarily in the clear yet. Uh, it's been a few seasons since he's been with the Bills, and you don't hear the Bills' names pop up. So I would be a little bit surprised if there were guys in connection right. with it, but they supposedly this all is still under investigation. I think the best thing for Saints fans and the Saints from this point forward is to avoid the appeal process, accept the commissioner's decision, and move forward. I was going to ask that. I heard Sean Payton... Uh, Roger Goodell actually mentioned that he he could possibly he coach could this appeal, year but if he appeals, why would you not appeal? Because of it doesn't look good. Well, for one, you're appealing to the guy that handed on the suspension. Right, right. For two, if they have a realistic chance at getting Bill Parcells to be the interim coach for this team, right? That was the other big. Why big... delay that? Just get him in. Eventually, he, Sean Payton's going to be punished. Right. So, I mean, he's not going to appeal, and the commissioner is going to come back and say, all right, you know what? I changed my mind. You're now suspended for one week with one-year probation. That's not going to happen. The commissioner has said that uh, the Saints could get Parcells. They just couldn't cherry-pick somebody off an existing team. Yeah, they can't get anyone from an existing team, and they also have to follow the Rooney rule. Really? Yes. So Okay. If they are going to bring Bill Parcells in, they are going to have to interview an African-American candidate as well. The only way they can avoid the Rooney Rule is by promoting someone from their own staff. Uh, The Rooney Rule doesn't apply there. Uh, I kind of detailed on my article on Pro Player Insider what I think the Saints should do. And I'm going to go over that real quick. One, more important than ever, Drew Brees needs to be taken care of and 100% healthy. There was a discussion. There's been a discussion for a long time that Drew Brees is like a coach on the field. He needs to be compensated for all of the extra responsibility that's going to fall upon Drew this season. Number two, I think that if you can get Bill Parcells, great. If you can't, I think it makes most sense to just promote the offensive or defensive coordinator. It doesn't really make much of a difference to me. Sure. One thing that... I guess works in the Saints' favor here. This might be a, a little bit overlooked in the media. So Saints went quite a few weeks last year without Sean Payton having much influence right, due he to blew his, his leg injury. Yeah. So, and during that time, the Saints showed just as much on the field as they had 
with him. Look at this is gonna these penalties are gonna hurt. Saints aren't gonna have a draft pick this year until ninety players are off the board. Ninety three players are off the board. So they're gonna have a tough time improving the team all that much through the draft. They're gonna have to really make this year that they find a Marcus Colston type of player in the seventh round. You know, that would be great timing if they can pull that off. They're gonna have to do it without Mickey Loomis and Sean Payton at the table though. But I think if you can get Parcells, great, do it. There's no negative to that, I don't think. He'd be the perfect guy to come in. It seems like that'd be the ultimate middle finger at the uh, commissioner, though, too, huh? <laughs> yeah. All right, commissioner, you're going to suspend me. Well, let me get one of the all-time greatest coaches in here to, and, to, to take the ship over. What exactly does the suspension to Peyton, like, when, when he can't coach, like, he can't be in practices or anything, I assume. Yeah, either. I guess he has to leave the facility on April 1st and not come back until the Super Bowl trophy is handed out. Wow. So the same with Mickey Loomis. He just can't. Be, I mean, but from a from a coaching perspective, that matters a lot more. That's a lot more significant. But if you're Mickey Loomis, can't you just do your duties from home? Basically, you know what I mean? Like, I wonder how much like do they turn his phone off? Are they monitoring his yeah, uh, Verizon you know, bill? You know, what I was thinking about is really funny is The Good Wife. It's a show on CBS. OK. Has a arc in their show right now where one of the managing partners of the law firm is suspended from law for six months okay but he's allowed to work at the firm and kind of handle the firm's business interests because he's a managing partner so there's all this gray area on the show that they're kind of addressing and it seems like the saints are gonna have to go down that same area right you know and it seems like it's gonna be really hard to get sean payton and mickey loomis and isolate them from the decisions that are involved on a day-to-day basis with the team just seems like it's almost like when you throw a manager out of a baseball game and he goes into the clubhouse. I mean, sure, we're not he's not sending text messages to the bench coach on who he wants to pinch hit. I mean, is that provable? <laughs> right. no, but I, I'll tell you no what, idea. I don't want him to go down that road. Look at Do what you have to do. If do you it. have to go away for eight weeks, if you have to go away for a year, do it. Um, and let's move on from this, please. It's been a nightmare. It hasn't been any fun. It's the worst to have to be the team, a fan of the team who's involved in this. It's horrible. I want to be enjoying myself the way Bills fans are now, signing guys like Mario Williams and Mark Anderson and celebrating what should be uh, the growth of the team in the positive direction. And I'm not ready to to, to have a funeral for the Saints team, though. I now, still think that they can accomplish a lot on the field this year. I really do. Sure, it's a quarterback league, and they've got arguably the best one. Um you bring in a guy like Parcells, you obviously he's not going to be a figurehead. Uh, do you right. worry about continuity? Like, Would it be better maybe for the team well, to just promote an offensive coordinator? No, because or? I think Sean Payton is a mini Parcells. I mean, that's his yeah. mentor. Yeah. The reason this is in play is because of the relationship that Parcells and Payton have. I think that they're very – So his system – I mean, Payton obviously knows what he's doing and suggesting a guy to come in. And take over his team for a year. Right, and I think the offense would seamlessly be taken care of by the offensive coordinator who did a great job when Peyton was out last right. year. Him and Brees can handle the offense. We brought in a new defensive coordinator to handle the defense. And by the way, Peyton really yeah, didn't true. do much that's with the true. defense anyway. Uh, Peyton really left that up to Greg Williams. That's Whoops. true. It would be different if Williams was <laughs> right. still there. Williams was gone, and right. there was a new regime there anyway. So I think the defense will handle itself. And then I think you build, bring Parcells in to do the, the to monitor practice, to make sure the team progresses, to help develop players, to put game plans in. And who could be better than, at that than Bill Parcells? Right. Um, so I, I think if you can pull it off, 
I think it's great. But what it, if what if Parcells wins the Super Bowl? Well, I, he's a seventy-year-old man. I think. He, well, he would just he's, he's, right off into the yeah, sunset. I yeah, I think he. I think it's a it's a win-win situation for. Well, as I heard someone say it's a no-win situation for him. If he wins the Super Bowl, he did it with Peyton's players, and if he doesn't, it's a, it's a failure. I, I don't see that at all. I feel like he comes in. If he doesn't win, well, what the hell is he supposed to do? The general manager was suspended for eight weeks, and the right. head coach isn't there, and. They lost Tracy Porter and Robert Meacham in the offseason, and they didn't have a draft pick until 93. And if he wins, he gets credit for saving a saving season. what right. could have been the biggest disaster in NFL history. By the way, the Super Bowl is in New Orleans this year. You know, <laughs> right. And the way things are, are set up, Coach Payton can stand on the podium in New Orleans and make the commissioner hand him the Super Bowl trophy. <laughs> the Saints were to win it. His his suspension ends when the Super Bowl does. Yeah, and, uh, that'd be something, huh? For people that uh, big that, smile on his face standing there. <laughs> for people that say that it's it's Parse- it's no win for him. He's going to come in and take I over totally somebody else's disagree. team. I mean, he's not going to come out of retirement to coach like the Jaguars or the Carolina Panthers or anything. So. Uh, if it doesn't work out, he has the fallback of everything that went wrong this right. offseason. And if it works out, he gets to, instead of leaving football with the potentially dirty taste in his mouth from everything that went wrong in Miami and everything that went wrong with Tony Romo dropping a field extra goal, pointer, yeah, field you goal. know, that was basically an extra point in terms of length, he gets to go out with another Super Bowl, maybe bring in another. Even if he gets the team to the playoffs, that's going to be an accomplishment. I mean, there are literally people like John Clayton who are saying that the Saints have are out of contention for the Super Bowl. That's crazy. It's such a quarterback-driven league, and they've got they've got the best one. Um, another team that, uh, or two other teams in the news for the negative reasons: the salary cap fines against Washington and Dallas were upheld. were upheld. Yep. So. That's a little bit of a tough ruling if you're on those teams. It was an uncapped year, yeah. so, so there's no rules for the cap, and you're getting penalized yes. based on cap rules. Uh, I'm but sure there's more legalese behind that that I Commissioner don't Goodell, he runs a tough, know or care tough about. Shit. sure does. But, yeah, so those fines were upheld. Also, you heard off the top, Tim Tebow, how excited he is. He is a New York Jet. Uh, Strange, strangely, whole thing New York is Jet, the way whole thing is strange. it played out, if you recall – there was a report that Tim Tebow was a New York Jet. Then there was a report that there was a holdup in the it, contract. Yeah. Then the next report out said that Tebow was mulling over a decision between the Jaguars and the Jets, yep. which nobody really seems to buy. And then he was a Jet again. And I guess I want to ask you, Don, take your Don face off, put your Mark Sanchez face on, and how do you feel about this? Uh, Mark Sanchez, according to Tim Tebow, is excited but I, I don't know how you can be. That guy, and look, as a Bills fan, first, I'm not a Jets fan in the least. They're probably my least favorite team in the league. I think Mark Sanchez is pretty lousy. But that said, man, this guy is getting a rough ride. His if own him, teammates. Have you ever heard of so many anonymous uh, sources out of locker rooms that are not happy with their current quarterback? And just this kid's getting thrown under the bus. He's been given nothing to work with. Two times in the AFC Championship game in his first three years. Who does that? Right. And you could say it's the defense or whatever, but Peyton Quarterback-driven league. Peyton Manning was like 6-10 and 10 in his fourth season in the NFL. This kid's gone to the championship game twice in his first three seasons, and his team can't 
get in line fast enough to bash on the guy. And it, it's a it's the worst possible city in the world for this. Yeah, and you bring in the bright lights of New York City with the guy as polarizing as Tim Tebow. Sure, every time. Sanchez throws an incomplete pass, he's going to look over his shoulder. Right. They talk about the uh, Lynn Sanity. Uh, Tebow is a way bigger figure. Uh, I think he led jersey sales in the league. And this is a guy that started, that wasn't even necessarily a starter on the team for most of the season. He did bring him to a playoff game, but then his own team didn't like him enough to keep him around because of Peyton. That, that Mark Sanchez gets beat up in the media as it is, and you bring in a guy that people love, uh, people took out billboards for in Denver, I can only imagine what they're going to do in New York. And it, As a Bills fan, I think it's great because I feel it can only end in disaster. Yeah, I, it seems like a really bad decision to me. I think it sends a terrible message to your quarterback. I think that... Well, Danny Tomlinson publicly said that it was the worst locker room or the most divided locker right. room he's ever been in. And I don't think this and he's does a classy much guy to bring the locker room together. No, sure doesn't. Uh, two other things real quick. Mark Anderson, like you said, the leading sack getter Ten the, sacks Patriots, the Patriots last year. Moves to division rival Buffalo, and again. Bills be building good. a nice 4-3 defensive line. Uh, yeah, you get, anytime you can get the guy with the most sacks off of division rival and onto your team, is, uh, great news. For fans. Uh, the last thing, Giants will host Dallas to yep. start the season on, on a Wednesday, September 5th, because like we said a few weeks ago that Obama will be giving a State of the Union or yep. uh, the, He'll be accepting the bid at the Democratic National oh, Convention. Okay, okay. On, on Thursday. Thursday. You know, I think probably by the next episode, if not the one after that, the entire NFL schedule will be out. And it's one of my favorite days of the year. You know, I love to be able to sit down and look at the schedule and circle the games and maybe decide what I'm going to go to, if anything. And uh, it's really interesting. The NFL, if nothing else, this offseason has had a plethora of storylines that are going to be super interesting to follow, develop here. And they have a real opportunity in making the schedule to highlight some of those storylines in the new Thursday night package. In the uh, in the primetime packages that the they have on ESPN and on NBC, so I'm really looking forward to it. And I should mention that next week we will have our first ever episode of uh, the Sportscasters, as presented by Football Nation, hosted on FootballNation.com, and uh, we're ready to do that and and have a, a separate podcast for you to listen to that will be 100% football based and i don't think starting it in april is a problem i think we're going to have a lot to talk about in sure april may june yeah, july and sure august sure hasn't been a problem the last last uh, few months yeah, the so last few weeks i'm looking forward to, to everything even as a little bit of a beleaguered and battered uh, saints fan here so all right my second thing this week the team usa the under 23 team Ugh. could not defeat canada or el salvador this weekend and will at home not yeah at home i believe in nashville it will not feel the soccer team at the Olympics in London Ugh. this year. Uh, it's pretty embarrassing. First time since 2004, which I guess really doesn't make it feel like that long ago. It's really two Olympics ago. But they finished third in their group. And like you said, this is this was third in their group in a, in a home game for a qualifier. Horrible. And I guess there was some controversy surrounding the El Salvador game uh, over like a card that wasn't called because of a punch. Or they also let in a goal from about midfield to lose it. Yeah, the goalie 
took a horrible, horrible angle at it. I heard described as the backup goalie. I'm not sure why he was in. I don't know if there was an injury or what. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't. I, it just it's a horrible, horrible day for soccer in the United States. Uh, there was a lot of momentum here after the U.S. had defeated Italy in a friendly, and we had even spent time for the first time on this podcast talking about soccer with uh, Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated, and I think this really uh, makes that takes the shine off of that quite a bit. Now that said, uh, because this was the next great thing for U.S. soccer to be a part of. I don't know off the top of my head was the team that beat Spain was that their under twenty three team? I, I'm not sure if that was. And either way, uh, I've seen people try to put a uh, silver lining on this cloud that the Olympic or the superpowers, the soccer superpowers of the world don't care as much about the Olympics. And that might be true. Maybe I mean, Obviously, the World Cup is bigger and some other European things. European championships this it's, year. It's still pretty embarrassing uh, that you don't even qualify. It's horrible. All you have to do is At home. beat Canada. Or El beat Salvador El is uh, the size of New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. Literally. So uh, bad, bad showing, USA. All right, my number two thing this week, Tiger Woods uh, finally – Dang. Won a PGA Tour event. It's the first time in 30 months or 923 days that he won the event, the Arnold Palmer Classic, which is where our buddy Damon Hack was last week when That's we right. interviewed him. And what a weekend he got. Now, here's here's the thing about Tiger Woods' victory. The top six players in the world weren't in the field. So you could say it was a weak field. But I think, who cares? Tiger Woods hadn't won in 30, 30 weeks, months. 30 months, 923 days. He needed a victory. It's really close to the Masters. Masters is right around the corner. Even when Tiger Woods is bad, he plays well at the Masters. And I think that he's going to be a force in that tournament. I think he might win it. And even if he doesn't, I think the three top players in the world going into that tournament are going to be Tiger Woods, uh, Roy, Roy McIlroy, and... Luke Donald, and I think it's going to make for a great Masters with some really interesting stories. And if you're a fan of Tiger Woods, if you're a fan of the PGA, it's kind of like Sidney Crosby coming back in the NHL. Sure. When that guy's out there, when that guy's playing well, that's good for golf. Yeah, Bottom line. I, I think even if you don't like him. Which uh, I don't. but it's, Right, your it's, sport needs him. They need him, and he... Could you pick Luke Donald or ratings? Rory McIlroy out of a lineup? I know who Rory is. I don't think I could pick Luke out. Right. So I mean, I mean, I know who he is. No, right. But right. I don't know him. No. Right. He's I don't watch just, enough golf. They're not faces enough. They're not. Out. Yeah, I could pick Mickelson out too. But uh, I mean, if these are the guys that are going to take over for Tiger, uh, they're going to need some face time with him a little bit. Right. And that—that's maybe something that's always been missing for Tiger. Maybe with the exception of Mickelson, is the really true Arnold Palmer versus Jack sure. Nicholson type rivalry and. Uh, this is going to be a chance for him to play with some of the young kids out there, the you know, and show that he's a top golfer in the world, and it's just it's good for golf. Bottom line. All right, my last thing, real quick, this week is Kimbo Slice, uh, former street fighter and MMA career guy, uh, big burly guy with the beard. Yep, you probably played, recognize him. Isn't he the one who played Mr. T in the Eighteen movie? That's not wrong. No, 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 no. That was uh, Rampage Jackson. Oh, okay. My bad. Kimbo Slice uh, used to do like the literally like the street fights. You could buy him on DVD or whatever. Well, he has improved his boxing record to four and zero, 
but it appears that he did so winning a fixed fight. Shocking. Uh, that it's not good for boxing, obviously, that you have fights being someone hold me down. Quote unquote. The shock is too great. Fixed, but he was fighting a guy by the name of Brian Green. Oh. An unsu- another unsuccessful Brian Austin M- Green? I don't believe so. No. Another unsuccessful MMA fighter making his professional boxing debut. Through three rounds, Green was has easily outpointed Slice and only needed to survive one more round to hand Slice's first defeat. Instead of staying out of arm's reach, they kept trading punches. And if you watch the video at Deadspin, uh, with about toward the end of the video, you hear one of the somebody. It doesn't specify who, but you hear somebody in the outside the video, outside the ring, yell, 15 seconds left. Green backs off, drops his guard, and takes three slow-motion taps, as Deadspin describes him, collapsing in a heap. The fans oh. begin booing immediately, and uh, <laughs> Deadspin adds, it's a pretty big allegation to say a fight's fixed, but that crowd knew what they saw. That's bad. Uh, <sighs> usually, you have to watch video afterward or slow down some tape or something to like, hey, wait a second, maybe that fight was fixed. The people in the stands who were probably drinking and partying and having a good time immediately knew that the fight was fixed. And I know fixed is a is a is a four letter word for people to just come right out and say it, but this seems to be pretty unanimously uh toward that decision. What a waste of money. Sure. And I mean, was there a line what on this a joke. game? If, I mean, how illegal is this? Was it's there very a, was there a it's, Vegas line on this game? I don't know, but it's horrible. This match? It, it make it highlights everything that's wrong with boxing. Every time I watch one of their bigger fights, I can't help but feel like I'm getting the wool pulling over my eyes in some way. You know, I'm not saying they're all fixed. I'm just saying it just never feels right. There's so many sh- instances we can go back on in the history of boxing where it went to the card and strange results uh, came from that and i hate that aspect of the sport you almost wish that they could fight till the knockout every single time (laughs) yeah obviously they can't no it's too brutal for that but but yeah check out the video on deadspin come up with your own conclusion you know who loves this dana white oh for sure he loves this for sure he says yep boxing is a joke but you know what isn't the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Yep, UFC and uh, the other one he bought out. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. But, uh, yeah, boxing, I've always had a problem with it because of all the different commissions and all the different belts. and Everything about it sucks. Yeah, there's just... The only fi- thing that doesn't suck about it is when you have a star like Mike Tyson who's just badass and you watch Sure. It, you know. And, and there's... But they're obviously reaching for that if they're fixing fights to make Kimbo Slice... A star? 4-0. Right, yeah. yeah. Good luck. All right. Our buddy Stuart Mandel from Sports Illustrated has been on the tail of this story quite a bit. In Dallas, right now, the BCS commissioners are discussing a potential four-team playoff for the 2014 season and beyond. They're trying to sort out some details that go along with that. Things like if there is a four-teamer in the semifinals, should they be on campuses? How will they decide who the four teams are? Are they just going to give it to conference champions? Are they going to have a committee like the NCAA basketball tournament? But this is great news. This is awesome. It seems more and more every day like one way or another in 2014 there will be some sort of playoff in college football, whether it be a plus one type system, which I guess they're still discussing, or will it be this four-team playoff? One thing we know it won't be 
maybe unfortunately is an eight or a 16 team playoff that's completely yeah. off the table but this is a start in the right direction i don't think you can walk before you can crawl uh so why not let's let's do it i love the sound of it i think the best case scenario is you get a committee together who at the end of the season picks the four best teams in college football out and you have uh, it's seeded one to four. One plays four at their campus. Two plays three at their campus. And then they meet on a neutral field the following week for the national title. So it won't be. That's what or, I like. Won't be two or three weeks later then. No, I don't think Good. so. I mean, that's another problem they have right right there. Just the amount of time in between the the time that the first and second place team have yeah, finished I, their last. I games. think they need to shoot for this to end on January first. Sure, why not? You know, I think that that's the way it always was and i think that's the way it should be absolutely and that's plenty of time so and if the teams are finishing regular play right around the first or second week of december then you have the third week of december you have the semifinals, and then the last week or first week of january you play the national championship game right and you can cram and all the other meaningless bowls wherever I mean, right this, yeah this will be whenever. it this will be it all right that is it for three things again a few things before we move on uh i didn't mention this off the top but don't forget we had a great show last week with Damon Hack, Neil Best, and Patrick Burke, who I definitely don't want you f- to forget from the You Can Play Foundation. Please go to our website, www.sports-casters.com, and check that out. If you want to hear more of my opinion about the Saints story, you can go to www.proplayerinsiders.com. And I want to mention our partners at Cole Football Facts and Football Nation, who we will be producing a podcast for very, very soon, as soon as next week. All right, as for today, we are going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to do an interview with Jonah Carey from Grantland.com. Then we're going to come back. We're going to do the Sportscasters 10. Today, I have made a list of my top 10 World Series, the top 10 teams most likely to win the World Series. Don has made a list of the top 10 things more likely to happen than the Mets winning the World Series. Yep. Then we will take another break. We'll have Tim Layden, senior writer from Sports Illustrated, on the show to talk a little bit about what we have discussed in terms of football, but his focus will be on the NCAA basketball tournament, which is down to four. And then we will update the book club and then interview Roy McGregor, the author of Wayne Gretzky's Ghost, and then close things off with pick four. So let's take a break and come back with Jonah Carey. Uh, our first guest today is from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, and is a graduate of the journalism program at Concordia University. He has contributed work for ESPN.com, GQ, the New York Times, and countless other pub- publications. Today he is a staff writer for the popular Grantland website, where he also hosts a podcast during the baseball season. His book, The Extra 2%, focuses on the rise of the Tampa Bay Rays and is a New York Times bestseller. His next book about his beloved Montreal Expos is due to be released in the spring of 2014. He's making his third appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Jonah Carey. How are you doing today, Jonah? I'm good. How are you, Steve? A little rattled by that introduction because YouTube was fighting me on it for some reason. They kept playing the song, not playing the song, playing the song. So, and I'm That's just... literally the first time I've heard the Tragically Hip in a long, Americans do not like the tragically hit. That's something I noticed. My wife, well, she, she, I think she might have been my girlfriend at that time. She was in college. I guess she was, yeah, it was before. That's right. And uh, she went to see 
I think it was Robert Play, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, they were touring, and the Tragically Hip opened for them. Oh. And apparently the audience booed and got very upset and just hated the Tragically Hip, just thought they were super boring. Whereas in Canada, they're incredibly popular. More popular in the 90s, that was their heyday. But uh, right. yeah, while the, I, I like uh, Bare Naked Ladies and some other bands that made it big over here, I guess Tragically Hip did not really translate. You know, that might be true. That, well, that is true. I agree with you 100%, except in Buffalo, New York. Where the tragic, is that right? Buffalo, yeah, they're oh, big there? They're huge here. Yeah, the Tragically Hip huh. are treated like they're treated in Canada and Buffalo as well. They play all the biggest nice. venues here. You know, they play the F, the F in center, as we affectionately call it now. And, you know, yep. they, they play, they've played pretty much everywhere in Buffalo at this point. You know, all the outside amphitheaters and all the most beautiful venues. So, yeah, they're treated very, very, very kindly here. So I feel like Buffalo is like an honorary Canadian city, so that makes sense. Yeah, it is to some degree. You know, we're so so close to the border, and yep. um, you know, I, man, I've spent so many hours and days in Canada, and I think, especially with the Canadian dollar where it is now, there's so many Canadians who have now spent so much time shopping and uh, spending time in Buffalo. So it's a good partnership up here, and and we love Das Hips here in uh, here in Buffalo. Sure. All right. Anyway, uh, we're excited to have you back. Um, since we talked to you last, I know Grantland, maybe at that time, I think when we talked to you last, you may have maybe written a piece or two for them, just kind of getting your feet wet. And I know you're, you're, you're a lot more involved now. You're getting ready to jumpstart your podcast on the Grantland uh, Podcast Network with the baseball mm-hmm. season. And uh, you're, you're writing there quite a bit. Tell me about Grantland and how you think you fit in there and how you like the freedom of being able to write these long-form pieces on the internet and... Uh, and uh, tell us, tell us just about what it's like working for Simmons. I think I'm a little atypical at Grantland, to be honest with you. The uh, the age order goes Simmons, Klosterman, and then me. I'm literally the third oldest person there. That includes editors, writers, everybody. I, I guess well, Charlie Pierce. If you want to count Charlie Pierce, that becomes a little bit of a different situation. But um, yeah, for the most part, it's a young group of I would say up and comers, except they've already established themselves mostly in their twenties. I mean. Uh, Jay Kang sold a novel. I think he's like 30 or 31. Uh, Molly Lambert was a very established entertainment writer before we brought her on board. She's in her 20s. Sarah Larimer, who does yo-woman's work, I guess you would say, uh, as the editor of the Triangle blog. She's in her 20s. We've got guys straight out of college. I mean, it's an incredible uh, group of talent and and really young talent. But at the same time, they've achieved so much in, in their lives. It makes me feel... I don't know, <laughs> crappy that I wasted so much time uh, just doing whatever it is that I'm doing. But, uh, no, it, it's cool, and, and I don't know if I fit in perfectly. I do think the one thing that they go for, aside from being entertaining, is they want smart writing and smart podcasting and all that. And I hope, for better or worse, that's kind of become my brand, um, that whatever you're going to get out of me, at least it won't be dumb. I will make an effort to say something that will be at least somewhat intelligent, and they seem to like it, and it's working out well on the baseball side. And, uh one of the really cool things is that uh, my partner in crime on the baseball side, I guess, and he doesn't write as often as, as we would both like because he has a successful dermatology practice, but Rainy Gisarelli was uh, my colleague back at Baseball Perspectives. He was kind of one of the biggest reasons that I even got into Baseball Perspectives in the first place a long time ago, 10 years ago, and, and we've been friends ever since. And uh, it, It's really exciting that I'm working alongside him, and uh, I think we feed off each other a little bit. He does such great work. I try to match him as best as I can. Yeah, such a great point you made about the staff. You know, we've been pretty close with Katie Baker, who came from the business sure. world. You know, and I didn't mention Bill Barnwell either. Katie and Bill are both in their twenties, and they're fantastic. Yeah, 
So, yeah, we love Grantland, and we love it even more because you're a part of it. Obviously, we're kind of a, a really small branch off the Damashek tree where you are uh, a much bigger branch. And, um, you know, so we we always uh, uh, follow you and keep along. So we're really excited to have you, and we're excited to talk some baseball with you today. Um, it's sure. getting really close. I think even this week we're going to have some games that count, even though they're going to be played in Japan. Uh, but the season is getting ready to kick off. And I guess before we get too deep into the season, I want to ask you, what were some things from during the off season that you think are going to be a big factor in the regular season, besides from the obvious stuff like, you know, Albert Pujols is playing in Anaheim now or, you know, something like that. But what's something that happened maybe a little bit under the radar in the off season that you think is going to make a big, big impact when we get playing the games that count here in April? Oh, I mean, a lot has changed this offseason. Certainly the pool signing was a big one. Fielder really took people by surprise, too, and ultimately they came down to Mike Elledge being 82 years old and saying, I want to win a title. Interesting choice to sign Prince Fielder for $214 million, if that's the way you want to do it. Certainly a good player, but he is a little bit one-dimensional, and if you look at that team right now, it's weirdly constructed. I mean, they do have Verlander, obviously, coming off a monster season, and Cabrera's possibly the best hitter in all of baseball, and combined with Fielder, that's going to be great. But, man, their infield defense is going to be terrible, terrible. And actually, just at Grandland.com today, I think it went up just an hour or two ago from when we were recording this, but uh, I wrote a piece about over-unders for the 2012 season, which teams I think are going to do better than Vegas expect or worse. Right. And my best bet is Tigers under, which is 93.5 wins. Now, that doesn't That's mean high. I don't think the Tigers are going to be good. I think they're the heavy favorites to win the Central. I just don't know if they're going to win 94 games this year. I think that... You could look at it on paper and see what they have and say, well, Verlander, Fielder, Cabrera, all right, that's great. But there are going to be a lot of ground balls that can go, go through that infield when you look at right now Cabrera at third, Peralta at short, Ryan Rayburn, who's not really a great second baseman either, at second, of course, Prince Fielder at first. So I think that's an interesting scenario. Uh, you mentioned the Angels and Pujols. I'm still not sure they're going to make the playoffs because even with the extra wild card, the AL is so unbelievably loaded. The Texas Rangers are great. Uh, they picked a few Darvish to replace C.J. Wilson. I think that could be uh, a reasonable exchange. Wilson was an excellent pitcher, but I like Darvish as well. And they're loaded, of course, offensively and have a good bullpen. And you look in the East, the Yankees are excellent, of course. Uh, the Tampa Bay Rays, who made the playoffs last year, the biggest, uh, what is it, the biggest comeback in the history of baseball, I guess, in September. They were in. And I'll tell you what, the Boston Red Sox, although they collapsed last year, and there's a lot of negative feelings toward them, this is still the team that was the best offense in baseball last year. They still Lester and Beckett. Uh, Clay Buckle should be back healthy. They upgraded their bullpen. They lost half Obama, but they picked up a bunch of other guys to help their bullpen. It's a very good team. I could see a scenario where three teams make it out of the AL East this season in the playoffs. You mentioned the the change in the playoff format as being one of the things that interested you in, in this season as we get going here. And we all remember what a great night 162 was last year. I mean, Lee Jenkins wrote an amazing piece about it in Sports Illustrated. I think we were all sitting on our couches or wherever we were watching as everything unfolded. And I remember Twitter really became a bigger part of my life that night, you know, just in terms of like watching, uh, being able to watch baseball games with Jonah Carey and Bill Simmons and all the great people who were tweeting that night. And um, mm. do you think that that this new playoff format is going to take away the chance to have a night like that? Or will we still be able to have night like, nights like that? It's just going to be different. Oh, I don't think it's going to make much difference at all. I mean, the only thing is you have a one-game play-in before that, which, if anything, could be more exciting because then it's a sudden-death game uh, between two wild cards. And it's not like this is going to be some chump game. I mean, there could be a scenario where it's something like, I don't know, I mean, Rays, Red Sox in the, in the American League. That's certainly possible. In the National League, you could see a, 
a Marlins Cardinals type of scenario, which would be really exciting too. So I think that uh, all that is going to be exciting and interesting, and the other four teams are going to stay the same. I don't anticipate it as too much of a problem. And, uh, you know, it depends how you view this thing. I mean, if you really want to get old school on it, you can say, well, gee, I mean, are we watering down the playoffs? We have two more teams in and so forth. But in a way, what it does, and I think this is partially the point, obviously the main point is to get more revenue for baseball, but if you are a purist, you can say, hey, listen, if you won your division, you actually earned something. It's not like before where, you know, the Yankees famously in 2000, what was it, 2010, they said, oh, yeah, we basically gave up late in the season because we said we're going to make the playoffs anyway. We'll let the Rays win the division, which, of course, is a very condescending Yankees thing to say. But anyway. right. And you look at it and you say, well, that's not going to happen anymore because let's say the Yankees and the Rays, for example, are battling in the AL East. Well, the loser of that battle is going to have to face probably the Angels or the Red Sox in a one-game playoff. So you're going to have to go up against Josh Beckett or Jared Weaver and Albert Pujols and Adrian Gonzalez and, and all those guys. If you don't win the division, that's a one-game playoff where anything can happen. You could be out before the thing has even started. So, you know, there does become more incentive to do it. So I, I kind of – I'm mostly pro. I do think that we've gone pretty far. Now we've got one-third of the teams making the playoffs, which is a lot, and I don't want it to be like hockey or basketball quite. But I think that we've, we've struck a pretty good middle ground here as far as uh, who makes the playoffs and who doesn't. One more thing, and then we, we can we can move on to the season. But the Ryan Braun, uh, I guess you could call it a scandal, it was really rubbing me the wrong way this year. I mean, first of all, he's the reigning National League MVP. And second of all, I kind of thought we were behind this. All this was behind us. And then third of all, I didn't like the way he chose to fight this. Now, I know there was a lot of money at stake for him. But, you know, it was basically let's try to get out of this on a technicality. And I just wonder, what's your opinion on Ryan Braun, and what do you think he's going to face as he uh, goes from ballpark to ballpark this season? Is this going to be a really big distraction for him? I mean, how can we possibly know that? I just don't think there's any way to know if people booing or or whatever is going to have an effect on someone's performance. I mean, I guess we could go back to previous precedents and say, well, if the guy used or something happened that he was uh, taunted, then what were the... uh, Results afterwards, but even then, you're not controlling all the variables. Let's let's say, for instance, I'm making this up, but let's say there was a scenario where player X, uh, you know, was known to have been a user, and then he gets booed that whole season, and then he loses 30 points off of his batting average and, and 10 home runs off of his total. Wasn't it possible that he lost 30 home runs and 10 home runs off of his total for the following reasons? Number one, he stopped using. That's possible. Right. Number two, regression to the mean. Number three. He was hurt that year. Number four, he got a divorce. I mean, there are just so many things that go into sports and baseball and so forth that there's no way to know. I mean, if I'm drafting a fantasy or if I'm thinking about picking the Brewers, I don't expect Ryan Braun to be a lesser commodity because he's right in the prime of his career. He's mid to late 20s. He's been a very good hitter throughout, and and I I think that he should be fine. I mean, I guess it's possible that something happens uh, that's untoward and that doesn't work out so well for him, but uh, I don't necessarily anticipate that happening. I think that you have to give players the benefit of the doubt in that situation, unless it's just obvious that they're going to regress in some way. And and if it's obvious, then it's got to be something like an injury. If Ryan Braun... And he has struggled a little bit this, uh, this spring, and I guess he's had some lingering issues. But if Ryan Vaughn really had a major wrist problem or something like that, I'd say, okay, yeah, it's going to be something where he falls off. But nothing, as far as we know, has occurred to anything like that. Well, you mentioned, you know, it's going to, you know, it's impossible to realize and all that. Well, there's probably some other things that aren't steroid-related that you're really interested in finding out in the first couple of weeks of the baseball season, what what might be some of the things that Jonah Carey is really interested in, in seeing develop the first month or so of the baseball season? Um, well, I, you know, some of the schedules are interesting. Uh, the Marlins, I was watching the Marlins play the Rays 
on uh, was it on ESPN the other day, and they were showing the schedules for those teams right at the beginning of the year. The Rays play the Yankees, Tigers, and Red Sox right off the bat. The Marlins play, it's something like the Cardinals, Braves, and Phillies. I mean, those are two tough tests. And as we've seen last year, getting off to a slow start doesn't necessarily mean anything. The Rays were terrible at the beginning of last year. So are the Red Sox, by the way. And both of them rallied and won 90 games, or 90-ish games. And so that's not necessarily going to derail your season. But it's just interesting where the second, the first and second wild cards are going to be very competitive this year, especially in the National League. I mean, the American League, there's going to be one good team that gets left out of the mix. But if you look at the National League, I'm having a hard time with it. I'm making my season predictions right now, and I'm trying to figure out, first of all, I don't even know who's going to win the East or the Central. And even the West, I guess, is kind of up for grabs. But, I mean, you're, you've got all these teams in the phylum of, what, the Marlins and the Braves and the Giants and the Brewers and the Reds and the Cardinals. I mean, even the Phillies with their diminished offense and I don't know what happens to Diamondbacks. There's just all these clubs, seven, eight, nine clubs, that are going to be competing at around the same level. And if the Marlins get off to that slow start, obviously that means those games are now in the bank and they don't have to play Team X later. But sometimes there could be this cascading effect where, for whatever reason, maybe the Marlins will, I don't know, Ozzie Guillen can overreact and do something silly with his bullpen if they start off one and eight, or, or, or God knows what. You know, maybe they fall too far behind so that when it gets to June and July and they would be at the trade deadline and they might have been, I don't know, two games out, they're five games out and they change their strategy. I mean, all these little things can, can matter. And I know there's a tendency to overreact what happens at the beginning of the season because that's all the sample that we have. But maybe it's possible to, I don't know, underreact too. We, we do have to take this into account. We have to think about what a slow start could mean for those teams. So I'll be watching that. I'll be watching schedules. And I'll also be watching some of the uh, top rookies, obviously, uh, who are going to be playing this season. That should be pretty interesting too. Freddie Galvis is slated to be the starting second baseman for the Phillies. <laughs> He's pretty much a no-name player. He plays pretty good defense, supposedly can't hit. But, I mean, just to be able to hold down the job would be big because the Phillies are without Chase Utley, and they're also without Ryan Howard. And mm-hmm. if they start to really struggle without those guys, what do they do? Do they dip further into the farm system, which is pretty much depleted, and try to make another trade very early in the year? Do they just accept it and hope that Utley and Howard come back in time? I mean, there's a scenario by which the Phillies miss the playoffs this year. That, that's how uh, how much of an up-in-the-air situation it is, too. So you're going to see some rookie situations. Obviously, some of the injuries could come into play and, and, and scheduled as well. You mentioned some of the rookies. Are you surprised that, that Bryce Harper's not going to start the season in that mix? Not necessarily. I, I think that uh, Harper would be better than Roger Bernadita in center field if he started the year in center field for the Nationals. I, I think that that's pretty clear. Bernadita's not much of a player, and they don't really have anybody else in center. And all last year they were talking about making trades for a center fielder. Ultimately it didn't happen at the trade deadline. Even before that, in the offseason they talked about it, and it never came to fruition. And Harper hasn't been a center fielder. He came up as a catcher and then a right fielder, and now he's just trying to learn the position now. So defensively, I think there's an adjustment to be made. And offensively, if he came up right now, my guess is he'd hit for power, but he'd also probably hit 240 or 250. I think that he'd have to adjust the major league pitching, and, and raw talent wouldn't get him everywhere. So it's a weird situation because if you have a guy who's better than the, your incumbent, theoretically you should just put him in the lineup. But maybe you want Harper to be more of a finished product when he comes up. And certainly we have to call out the financials here. There's no question about it. If Harper comes up you know, June 25th instead of now, then the national stand to save some money because he would probably not qualify for what's called Super 2 arbitration status, so he'd be a little bit cheaper and he'd be nationals property a little bit longer. So you've got all these motors working together such that I understand it. I don't think the Nationals are a team that necessarily needs to worry about finances as much as, let's say, the Rays, who just constantly are manipulating service time with their young players. You see it all the time. But I do get it. I don't think that Harper's quite 
the product that he's going to be. I think he could be two, three, four, maybe five or six years away from the guy he, he could potentially be in his career. So if it takes a few months longer for him to really mature and, and leave him in the minor leagues, that doesn't necessarily bother me. You know, Jason Hayward from the Braves was a player who was in a similar position a couple of springs ago, managed to earn his spot in the major leagues and had a home run in his first at-bat in the majors. And it seemed like last year he had a bit of a sophomore slump. Do you think that uh, Jay Hay can still be the guy that the Braves were excited that, you know, is, is he still the same prospect? Is he still viewed as the same prospect as he was a few years ago? Or did last year really kind of take some of the polish off? I mean, injuries, that's the big thing, right? Last year, that's what bothered him. And this spring, he's had some injury issues too. And, and that's, I don't care how good a prospect you are, if your arm isn't working properly or your wrist or your shoulder or your knees, or that's not going to get it done. The power hitter, there's just so many ingredients that go into creating a great power swing. And if you don't have all of them working in unison, you're just not going to be as good. You just can't, you know, muscle the ball out of there with all arms. It doesn't really work all that well. So that's really the issue with Hayward. I, I don't see that his development has been curtailed or anything like that. I think that we just need to see him back at full strength. Now, it's possible that, you know, he could become what we call an injury-prone player. I mean, there are guys like that. Nick Johnson was a great hitter for as long as he was healthy, but he could never stay healthy. I'm not implying that Jason Hayward is remotely in the same category as Nick Johnson at this point. All I'm saying is we need to watch this. I mean, maybe it's the kind of thing where he's got you know, chronic issues, potentially this or that. We, we don't know yet. So we're waiting to see what happens. We're waiting to see if he's going to be 100% for opening day, first of all. And if he is, or if he is soon afterwards, then actually I do think there's a potential that he bounces back pretty nicely because we saw what a healthy Jason Hayward can do in his rookie season. It was pretty darn impressive. He didn't hit 40 home runs or anything, but he showed remarkable batting eye for somebody that young. I mean, he just really understood balls and strikes. He could take his walk when he needed to. He'd work deep counts. You know, he'd hit the ball into the gap. If, if he didn't have quite a pitch that he could uh, drive out of the park. He, he just showed really the, the tools of an, uh, the skills of an advanced hitter at age, what was it, 21. So I'm very bullish on the guy. Anybody who succeeds that young, early in his career has a chance to be great. I mean, you could go down the list, A-Rod and Ken Griffey Jr. and go back to guys like Jimmy Fox. I mean, that's that's how you get somebody who becomes a really special talent is if they can break in, not only hold their own, but really play well as a young player. I include Justin Upton in that category too, by the way. I think Justin Upton is an MVP candidate this year. Uh, he's got a chance to have a monster career. I don't even know if the guy's 25 years old yet. I mean, that's the kind of thing you're talking about when you break in with that kind of skill and show how good you are right away. Yeah, you mentioned you know players kind of coming back from injury, and it's an interesting season where we have some veteran players who are going to be back, like Johan Santana, and we have some really young players like Posey and Strasburger going to be back. Uh, mm -hmm. Players that are coming back from injury, who are you worried most about in terms of where they might be in their career, and, and who are you most excited just to see return and, and to see maybe continue on their path to what maybe we thought before the injuries. Like with, with Strasburg, I remember just every time he started, it was appointment television, and then just the disappointment of the injury and, and waiting the long time that it takes for, for Tommy John to do what it does. Well, you have to factor in where the guy is in his career. Johan Santana you know, is obviously older, and he's not quite as good as he used to be. Certainly there's that. Someone like your Grady Sizemore, Travis Hafner, it's the same story, where even if magically they were 100% healthy, at this point I think it's foolish to even – remotely expect that to happen given how many injuries they've had, they, you know, that ship has kind of sailed. I mean, Grady Sizemore is never going to have that speed again because his knees are gone. And Travis Hafner's in his mid-30s. You can't really expect him to hit 40 home runs ever again, even if he were healthy. So I think that it becomes an age kind of thing where the reason you're bullish on Posey and Strasburg is because assuming there's no major structural damage and they can come back, just the development curve suggests that they should be 
playing very well now and hopefully even getting better. You know, the, the typical baseball, and of course the players age in all kinds of different ranges and, and different uh, patterns, but typically you're looking at mid to late 20s is when you hit your prime. I mean, Strasburg is just starting out and Posey is, you know, for the most part, just starting out. I guess this will be his third season now, but even still. So you have to be more optimistic about a player like that. And, and uh, I'm a big fantasy player. It's obviously reflected in fantasy, too. I mean, you're not getting a discount on Steven Strasburg at the table. I can tell you that. I've seen him go for, uh, what he go for in the auction that I just did? I think it was something like $25. Wow. He was drafted. I did a couple of drafts, straight drafts. He was drafted in the high rounds. People expect him. You know, they're valuing him like David Price, basically, or, uh, I don't know, you know, someone of that caliber. So, uh, higher than a Josh Beckett or John Lester, for example. They really see just huge, huge potential there. They think that he could be a monster pitcher. And it's interesting that um, he's getting that much love, by the way, because the Nationals have announced that they're going to cap his innings this year at 160. So I guess people really, really think that each of those 160 innings is going to be absolute gold because we know for a fact that he's going to be limited this season. You know, he's on the... He's on the, the one side of the spectrum. Chipper Jones is on the other side. He kind of announced that he's going to be on a farewell tour this year. We're going to have to wait for that to start because he's going to start injured. Uh, do you think he is ending a Hall of Fame career or a sort of close to Hall of Fame career but not quite? Oh, no. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. I did a piece uh, that went up on com on Friday about the top active players in terms of wins above replacement. Wins above replacement just means you take the 25th man on a roster, You know, somebody who's kind of a fringe player, how much better is player X versus that player in terms of how many wins does he contribute to the ball club? So instead of saying, well, you hit 280, you say, with Chipper Jones, you're a 90-win team. Without Chipper Jones, you're 87, or whatever. You know? so, and there's a formula that breaks all this down. Anyway, so Chipper was his third all-time among active players in uh, wins above replacement. Uh, you know, he's, he's one of the greats. We're talking about just behind someone like an Alex Rodriguez, who's off the charts. I mean, he, Alex Rodriguez is going to retire as one of the 20 best hitters of all time. So... In terms of Chipper, yeah, I mean, he has earned every bit of it. He's been phenomenal for a long, long time. It's interesting because he's been such a lousy defender, especially late in his career. It just shows how good a hitter he is. I think that people lose track of it, and maybe they lose track of the quality of hitters in general because of the era that we're coming off of. When we say the PED era, we don't just mean the people used. We mean that offense in general was up. In other words, even if you were, quote-unquote, clean in this era, you still had the ballparks working in your favor and a very small strike zone, and... 10,000 other things which really could boost performance as well, such that Chipper was uh, phenomenal, but there were a lot of other players that were good. But if you look at Chipper against his peers, even then he really stands out. I mean, it's not like, you know, there's a lot of first base and you say, well, gee, was Fred McGriff better or Jeff Bagwell or this guy or this guy? And I mean, Bagwell was much better. But there, there's just a lot of cases where you can look at counting sites and you can say, this guy had 412 home runs, this guy had 425. I can't figure out the difference. With Chipper, you can figure out the difference. Higher batting average, higher on base, better slugging, more homers. He plays third base, too, which is more of a premium position than something like a first or a left field. I mean, this guy was just a super-duper star. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. He's going into the Hall of Fame. He's going to go first ballot as well. The Sportscasters are here for a few more minutes with the great Jonah Carey, who you can follow on Twitter, at Jonah Carey, and read his great work on Grantland. Uh, a couple more questions for you. One thing, I, I have a dream, and uh, a baseball dream. I live in Buffalo, New York. We don't have our own team. Uh, Miami yep. and uh, Colorado have those teams that we once uh, maybe pitifully begged for. Um, and I've been to playoff games in Cleveland. I've been to a World Series game in Toronto. And I dream that someday I can get on the 90 and head west to go to a playoff game in what I think is one of the most beautiful places in America, PNC Park. I know yep. it's probably not going to happen this year, but how how close are we, if at all? Well, the Pirates, the thing about the Pirates is they actually have pretty good hitters. 
on their roster right now. Uh, guy like Andrew McCutcheon, Neil Walker's an above-average player, too. I'm not sure Pedro Alvarez is done either. I think that he could be interesting as kind of a post-type uh, player. So they've got some talent there. Sterling Marte is coming through the system. They've got a couple other hitters. But it's really going to come down to the pitching. And as it stands right now, there aren't too many great pitchers on that major league staff. People have had high hopes for James McDonald. Maybe he becomes something, maybe he doesn't. There are a couple other young guys on that staff. Charlie Morton is not bad. He's not even that young, I guess, anymore. Uh, but he's never going to be a big strikeout guy, so that's going to limit his upside. It's going to come down to guys like Garrett Cole and, and, and other people in that system who are lower down, who might take years. You know, high school guys, people who are 18 or 19 years old. So even in a best-case scenario for the Pirates, unless they suddenly just have an orgy of spending where they say, yeah, let's go out and get whatever, Sabathia type, or this guy, or this guy, or this guy, it's probably going to take a while. These pitchers might take three or four or five years just to make the majors. And then typically, you know, rookies, this is the Posey and the Hayward, and then Ryan Braun was a big rookie. Occasionally you're going to get a big contribution right away, but for the most part, players take a while to get to their prime. So you might not see someone like Garrett Cole or Tylon, who's their big uh, high school guy, this could be a long time before they become not only major league pitchers, but really good pitchers. So it's going to take a while, and I think that by the time that happens, we could see a whole new turnover of the roster. McCutcheon just signed a long-term contract, but I don't know if Walker's on the roster. I don't know if I'm hard-pressed to think of a whole bunch of other young guys, but I think you could just see a totally different Pirates team by the time that pitching comes into play. So it's very hard to predict because I think the timeline has to be extended for a club like this. The extra wild card helps. The fact that they play in the NL Central, which is uh, – well, I mean, it can be strong some years. Right now it's down a little bit, so that's certainly possible that it can help them a little bit. But for the most part, I think you're talking about a scenario where Pirate fans have waited 20 years. It's going to be at least a few more before they get back to the playoffs. Well, you know, I'm rare here. I, I dream of uh, Pirates playoff games, but most people in this area, uh, you know, they settled on the Yankees when Don Mattingly was there or because their dad was making it. It's a huge Yankee area. People are surprised by that because they think that, you know, we might have some kind of – uh, angst with uh, you know the big city being here in Western New York, but people love the Yankees here, and they were relatively quiet for the Yankees, you know, uh, this off season until they added Corota and Pineda. Um, what, where do you think the Yankees are? are they, they're a better club than last year. How much better? And where do you, where do you think they might look to improve the club as we get closer to July? I think the answer depends on exactly how you pronounce Pineda's name. You pronounce it Pinata briefly. If he pitches like a Pinata, they're going to have right. a problem. Um, so uh, that, that's what we used to. I used to go to. I lived in Seattle. Uh, Joel Pinero was. Uh, this was on the downside of his uh, career. We called him Joel Pinata. He, he just got absolutely destroyed. Nice. And uh, I, I think it's a little bit, you know, of a concern with Pineda. They talked about it in spring training where his velocity's been down a little and. Uh, you know, there's been suggestions made that he might even have to go down to the minor leagues for a little bit just Ooh. to recover the velocity and all that. And, and it's hard to say because spring training, you can overreact. And if one start or two or three or even four or five, you don't know what to do. But there's going to come a point, and we're just about at that point, right? We're just reaching the end of March. Season's about to start. we got to figure out what's going to happen with this guy. So interesting scenario for the Yankees. The good thing is that they've built pitching depth. And this is one of my favorite things if I'm thinking about predicting a team. And, and the way that I phrase it is in terms of the Red Sox last year. Here are three of the pitchers who pitched for the Red Sox in September last year as starters. Kyle Weiland, Tim Wakefield, and Andrew Miller. You can talk about fried chicken and beer and all that stuff all you want, but the reason that the Red Sox engineered the biggest collapse in the history of baseball is because of Kyle Weiland, Tim Wakefield, and Andrew Miller. Those are not viable major league starters at this point in their careers, and it's a big issue for them. If the Yankees don't have Pineda at the beginning of this year, they did get Corona. I like Corona a lot. I think that's a good signing. 
Sabathia is there. But even someone like a Freddy Garcia, he's basically their sixth starter right now. He could easily come in and patch and do well. He did fine last year. Phil Hughes is a viable rotation candidate. He can certainly pitch well. He's got the talent. And in the minor league system, they got a guy named Manny Buduelos. He's not that far away. By midseason, he could be a viable major league starter, too. This is the kind of thing that I want to see. The Yankees have that depth. I would say the Rangers have that depth. The Tampa Bay Rays certainly have that starting pitching depth. And I'll throw the Cardinals in there, too. Even though Wayne Wright is coming back from Tommy John surgery, even though Chris Carpenter starts the year on the DL, they've got all these other guys. I really like Jaime Garcia, and Lance Lynn is a good young pitcher, and, and they've got all these different options. So that is what you want from a team. And, and looking at the Yankees, that lineup is the same. Yes, they're a year older, so I guess someone like a Jeter or an A-Rod, maybe you expect a little bit of a decline. But for the most part, very, very good lineup. Bullpen is very good. We know that it's deep. David Robertson is excellent. They've got some other guys backing up Rivera. And that starting pitching depth. So, I mean, the Yankees are my favorites to win the AL East. I think that they're going to be a very, very good club this year and a legitimate World Series contender. During uh, let's okay, let's, let's finish up on this. We'll get you out of here on this, and it's going to go. I'm going to go way, way off the grid here. But okay. way back, your first time you were on, it was to talk about the extra two percent, which we loved here on the Sportscasters. It was one of the first books we did in our book club, which we still do, by the way. And cool. I was thinking about you during awards season when Brad Pitt was being nominated but not really winning very many awards for the great work he did in Moneyball. And I remember when we when we were reading the extra two percent, everyone would say to us when I tried to explain to him, they're like, Oh, like Moneyball, right? And you know, you'd have to try to explain to him why it's different. But do you ever envision the extra two percent? You know, do you think that it could someday be a movie with the right script that could wow people in theaters the way Moneyball did? I mean I think it's a better book. I mean, I know I might be in the minority there, I mean, but it, I, enjoy it. I enjoyed it more. It, it's nice of you to say that it's a better book. I, that's not the common opinion, obviously. First of all, it hasn't sold uh, one iota. Well, I think that's why it's not the Moneyball common has. opinion. Yeah. Moneyball is a, a terrific story. I mean, that's the thing about Michael Lewis is he's a master storyteller. He distills very complicated concepts down to something that's very simple and very entertaining. And not just this, something like The Big Short. I mean, you're talking about derivatives and, and, uh, and just all these complicated... Uh, business concepts, I guess you could say. He made it work. The first book he ever wrote was something called Liar's Poker, which is my favorite Michael Lewis right. book. And it was about the bond market in the 80s. The bond market's incredibly complicated. I mean, he just made it seem so simple. He turned it into a book about personalities, and it was just incredible in that way. I just don't have that skill. I'm, I'm not that good. I don't have the ability to do that kind of thing. And I don't tend to distill things. If there's a complicated concept, I'll try to make it pretty simple. But I'm not going to, uh, how do I put this? I'm not going to smooth out the rough, rough edges on it. In other words, if the Rays did something that's very successful, I'll say, well, this and this and this. But I'll also say, you know what, we have to factor in a little bit of luck and randomness and regression to the mean and all that. I'm a truth teller. Not that Michael Lewis doesn't tell the truth. I think that Michael Lewis just gets at angles that are more compelling, whereas I tend to tell more of a holistic story. That's a terrible, terrible formula for a movie. Terrible. You don't want that. You don't want... Oh, well, let me tell you about regression to the mean and so-and-so. You want, yeah, Carlos Pena used to hike mountains in the off-season, and he did this, and he uh, dates supermodels, and he bench presses 700 pounds, and uh, and uh, he learned it all from Bill Gates. You know, that's that's movie stuff, and that's not the story of the race. That's not what happened. And so because I focused a little bit more on the just the actual happenings rather than trying to, to spin it a certain way or distill it a certain way, I, I just don't think there's any chance. I mean, aside from the fact that the book didn't sell as well, aside from the fact that I have nowhere near the cachet as Michael Lewis, aside from the fact that there are 70,000 reasons why it's impossible, if I could somehow create a scenario where I had that kind of juice, 
I still don't think it would work because it's just not that kind of book. I was thinking about what you were saying. I guess in your Moneyball, you in your Moneyball movie, you would have had Hudson, Zito, and Mulder in it, right? Yeah. No, I no, not at all. Because okay. I don't have a problem with Moneyball the book or the movie, and I really like the movie. Here's how you watch Moneyball the movie. You don't watch Moneyball the movie thinking about the 2002 Oakland A's. You watch Moneyball the movie thinking about here's Brad Pitt and popcorn and my girlfriend. That's <laughs> how you watch the movie. I, I mean, that it's as simple as that. I, I only saw it for the first time uh, just a few weeks ago, actually on an airplane, and I loved it. I thought it was great, and even the daughter singing and all that stuff, which people didn't like. I, it was very nice and heartfelt and touching and cool, and, and it was a... It was a movie with heart, and and uh, and even you know as much as the book uh, smoothed things over and distilled things. I mean, the movie obviously did that even more necessarily because it's a two-hour movie, not a book that takes you know at least a couple of days to read. But even still, I loved it because I just thought about it as a movie. I didn't think about well, let me tell you about the OPS of Terrence Long and how that affected the team. Who the hell gives the crap? That makes no difference to what happens in the movie or for that matter in the book. So uh, I, I liked it a lot. I just didn't watch it as a uh, as a documentary, and I think that if you don't watch it, watch it as a documentary, you'll probably find that it's a very well done movie. And if I, you know, if there was a scenario where the extra two percent was made into a movie, and I can't, like I said, there's a zero percent chance of that happening. But if there was, and they asked me to, you know, sit in and what were my thoughts or whatever, I would try to get a singing twelve year old daughter too, and I would try to have, I don't know, you know, some handsome guy playing uh, player X and. Uh, and Chris Pratt would, uh, from Scott Haddock, he'd go on to play, I don't know, Ben Zobrist or whatever, and, and we'd make it all work. Uh, because you can't, movies are just a different universe than books, and even books can differ greatly based on the focus that you want to take. So screenplay writers everywhere need to wait for 2014 for your Expos book. Maybe there's a screenplay there then? <laughs> I think the Expos book is actually going to be less of a cinematic book. The Expos <laughs> book is going to be, my plan for that book, if you've ever read a Bill James abstract, it's got all these short uh, passages and long ones of 10 pages on uh, Craig Vigio and a paragraph about uniforms in the 30s. And it's, it's eclectic and weird, and you can turn to page 162 and just jump in from there. That's what the book is going to be like. There will be some narrative, of course, and there's going to be a lot of storytelling from the people that were involved in it. But I'm going to be all over the place. I'm going to interview UP. I'm going to talk about stadium economics. I'm going to uh, you know, have some thoughts on what Montreal was like in the 1960s and why that precipitated the baseball team. I mean, all this stuff is in play. It's a, it's a business book. It's a baseball book. It's a political book. It's a social book. It's a story of my upbringing. It's a little bit of a first-person narrative. I mean, all that stuff is in there. So it'd be a big, fat mess if you tried to make it into a movie. Are you having the time of your life doing it? I'm sorry, say again? Are you having the time of your life doing it? Oh, yeah. No, it's been great. The interviews have been cool. Uh, the last month I've, I've sloughed off of it, I have to be honest, just because I've been so focused on Grandland stuff. This right. March and October are the two big months of the year, obviously, mm -hmm. with the previews and then obviously covering the playoffs in October. And so uh, I did do a couple interviews when I was out in spring training. One fun thing, Jim Tracy is the manager of the Colorado Rockies, and I live in Denver now. I just moved recently. And uh, Tom Runnels is his bench coach. First of all, Tom Runnels was out of baseball for 17 years. He was the manager of the Expos. It didn't work at all. He got fired, and he, he could not get back to the majors. He was a minor league uh, coach and instructor for a long, long time. And finally, Tracy called him up and said, hey, you're going to be my guy. And their history goes back a long way. They used to play against each other way back in the day. But my favorite story, and this will be in the book, it was in uh, 1993, I believe. Okay. Uh, they were managing different teams, 93 or 94, one of those. They were managing different teams in the minor leagues against each other, and this, the team that Jim Tracy was managing, it must have been 93, actually, now that I think about it, 
was absolutely loaded. It had all these first-round draft picks, Rondell White and Cliff Floyd and uh, Gabe White, who at the time was a very big uh, prospect. Shane Andrews was a first-rounder. They had all these guys on that team, and they blasted everybody. I think they finished the year 144. I mean, they were just unbelievable. And the team that Ronald was managing was terrible. And so the Tracy team, the Expos, minor league double-A team, was just slaughtering them. They literally won every game against the London, Ontario club that Ronald was managing. And finally... Uh, after the uh, team, the Expos farm team, they hit back-to-back home runs. Then the second baseman comes up, and he's not as good as the other guys. And he calls a shot. He points out to the outfield. He says, I'm going to hit a home run, too. Well, the Runnels' team had had enough, and they, he ordered the pitcher to bean the guy. Bean the guy, the biggest brawl of all time ensued. And so there's a, this whole conversation. I was at spring training uh, a couple weeks ago. I sat down in the office of Tracy and Runnels, and no joke, for an hour and a half, we fleshed out all the details of this crazy brawl when they were managing it against each other. And it was just an amazing recollection of, you know, what does Cliff Floyd do when a brawl happens? What does Rondell White do? How does this all shape up? How does this affect the future of the Expos and, and uh, that 94 club that ultimately had White and Rondell and some of those guys and the confidence and the almost arrogance that those young players had and how good those teams were. And it's all kind of part and parcel. So that's been interesting. When possible, if I'm on another assignment, be for Grandlin or something else, and I, and I come across somebody who, hey, you used to manage the Expo 20 years ago or whatever, it's a good opportunity to try to mix those uh, those assignments. So that's what I've tried to do as best as I can. And, uh, yeah, I mean, even though the book is two years away from publication, the publisher is expecting something within the next year, so i got to get moving a little bit. <laughs> you may, right now I feel like uh, back when I was a Sopranos fan, you know, when I had to wait between seasons. That's what this feels like right now. You know, but we're very excited for the book. All right, it's Jonah Carey. You can find him on Twitter, at Jonah Carey. It's going to be a lot of work, I'm sure, in the next few weeks on the Grantland website as we get ready for the baseball season to start. His podcast is going to start up again over there, which I'm sure you're excited about. I was going to ask you for the very last thing to be a World Series pick, but it seems like you're still working on that. So instead, very last thing, what's your Stanley Cup pick? I mean... Between having young kids and a book and Granlin and stuff like that, I really haven't followed hockey close other than Gino Malkin is probably the best player in the league right now, except for him and Lundqvist, I guess. So, yeah, I don't, I don't have a good answer for you. I think that anything I say would be uneducated, so I'll leave that to smarter hockey people than I. I'll tell you one thing, the Habs are not going to win the Cup this year. You can no. take that to the bank. Zero percent chance. You know, I, was, I have been going to Sabres and Habs games since I was five years old, and I was at one last week. Literally the least amount of red in the arena in my entire life for one of those games. It's the first time I've ever felt like Canadians fans have given up on their team. It's the first time ever. Usually, record doesn't matter. Standings doesn't matter. They're usually always there. 5,000 of them. There for warm-ups. There during the game. Loud when they score. The other night, nothing. Nothing. It was, yeah, it was it's incredible. pretty sad. Yeah. The only the only consolation about this hat thing, and this will be, uh, you know, next year will be twenty years since they've won a cup, and yep. uh, it's been a long drought by standards of this team, which has the most championships, of course, and was once considered the Yankees of hockey. And this is all very depressing until you remember that they will never ever be as pathetic as the Toronto Maple Leafs. So there's always <laughs> that. I love it. Let's end on that shot. Thank you very much, Shona. We really appreciate it. Um, and. Uh, we look forward to the podcast, obviously. Like Anything I didn't mention that you want to make sure our listeners are uh, on the same page with? No, you are all set. You plugged away, and I appreciate it. Thanks, Jonah. Thanks, Steve. Talk to you soon.
Special thanks to Jonah Carey for being on the podcast today. Let's keep the baseball discussion going a little bit. Uh, my idea for the Sportscasters 10 today was to do something that we did with the National Hockey League, but we didn't do it in the beginning of the season because we weren't doing the Sportscasters 10 yet. So I thought what would be cool for today is to have a list of the top 10 baseball teams most likely to win the World Series, and we can update this list as things happen in the world of baseball over the course of the season, like the trading deadline, the all-star break. We'll always go back to this initial list and update it like we're doing with our hockey list. Right. Don decided to take things a little bit of a different direction. I encourage that here. A little creativity goes a long way. So, Don, why don't you tell the listeners about what your list is going to be? All right, I looked at the uh, suggestion this week and thought if I was going to put together a list of the top ten teams, my lack of baseball expertise would have led to the most generic list without any of the greatest reasons or in-depth analysis on uh, middle relievers or their seventh guy in the rotation or batting order. So I came up with a list of the top ten things most or more likely to happen than a Mets World Series win. Now, why did you pick the Mets? Because it sounds like I mean, be, it was a good pick. It'd be easy to pick any team uh, that's just a garbage bottom dweller. Uh, but the Mets are—I mean, they're New York City. They're—they're they're kind of a tire fire. Uh, <laughs> Understatement. Yeah, I mean, they're just—they're a disaster. And uh, like I said, it's New York City. I mean, it's a team that has more money than anybody, but can't. Well, well, they have a regional sports network that right. they own. Plenty of money coming in. They have a beautiful brand new stadium. Well, some people don't think it's that beautiful, but in City Field. They're in the number one news market in the world. So, yeah, they should be doing better than they are. Yeah, it's just a team that can't do anything right. So, so this is what you got. You got me and Don going back and forth. Back and forth. Don's going to give you the top ten things that are more likely to happen than the Mets winning the World Series. And I'm going to give you the top ten teams that are most likely to win the World Series in October as part of Sportscaster's preview of the 2012 Major League Baseball season. All right, in no real order, my number 10 uh, likely thing or thing more likely to happen than the Mets winning the World Series is the men's U.S. soccer team wins Olympic gold in London. <laughs> my number 10 team most likely to win the World Series is the Atlanta Braves. The Braves were very close to being a playoff team last year before Losing out on the wild card in the National League on day number 162, game number 162, to the eventual world champion, St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, one thing about the Braves team this year, as compared to last year, is one of the reasons why the Braves were so successful last year was because of Craig Kimbrell and Johnny Venters out of the bullpen. They ruined those guys towards the end of <laughs> last year. They didn't have anything left in the tank. And uh, I think those guys will rebound, give the, ch- the Braves a chance. I still like their pitching. Uh, Tim Hudson's still there. Tommy Hansen. Uh, Mike Miner is going to be a star- left-handed starter in the rotation. Jason Hayward, one of the bright stars in Major League Baseball. I have an actual baseball-related question. Yes. Chipper Jones announces this is going to be his swan song. Good yes. guy. Uh, one of the few people really in sports, modern sports that is going to finish his entire career with one team. Is he really... Did he suffer some sort of major injury, I heard? It's out three weeks. Okay, three weeks. Yeah. Okay, good. Because when I first heard about it, I thought, oh, man, this poor guy <laughs> announces yeah. his... Yeah, no, he's out about three weeks. Okay, that's good. All right, my number nine thing more likely than a Mets World Series victory is Donald Driver wins Dancing with the Stars. 
My number nine team most likely to win the World Series is the Tampa Bay Rays. Jonah Carey's team. Just heard Jonah talk a little bit about the Rays. Look, at there's a lot of things that are really great about the Rays still. Namely, David Price, one of the best young baseball pitchers in the world. And I think that the problem for the Rays is they're in the same division as the Yankees. And also, the American League is stacked this year. You're going to hear, as my list goes on, how many American League teams I say as compared to how many National League teams I say. So it's going to be difficult for the Rays. But the Rays are a team you can never count out. You can't count them out when they're 15 games out in July if that happens, as we've seen last year, as they made the incredible push to the playoffs. So with the extra wild card... I think that benefits teams like the Braves and the Rays, gives them a chance to maybe sneak in there. And uh, that's why the Rays made my list at number nine. My number eight thing more likely than the Mets World Series win is the Avengers wins the Best Picture Oscar and the CGI version of the Hulk wins the Best Actor in a Supporting Role. (laughs) The uh, Soundgarden will be having a song on the Avengers soundtrack, I heard. Awesome. Yeah. All right, my uh, number eight team most likely to win the World Series is the newly named Miami Marlins led by one of the greatest personalities in baseball, Ozzie Guillen. Uh, the Marlins have a new stadium this year uh, in Miami, uh, supposedly with a roof that's going to be closed most of the time. They spent a lot of money in free agency, adding big players like Jose Reyes and Heath Bell in the bullpen and Mark Burley in their rotation, which should be fairly good. Carlos Zambrano, who you know from the Cubs, is there. They have really great young stars like Hanley Ramirez. And it seems like they can be the second best team in the National League East, which I think is going to be very good. I have three teams from the National League East on my list, and I only have five teams. Well, I guess I have five and five so from the American and National League, but my top four are American League teams. So The Florida Marlins have been... To the playoffs. Have they won every every time they've gone to the playoffs? They've won the World Series, Correct. right? Yep. Yeah, two for two. Seven and two thousand three. Yeah, that's a uh, that's the way to do it if you're going to do it. Uh, my number seven thing more likely than a Mets World Series victory is Rex Ryan wins the Hunger Games. I don't know what they are, but I me mean, neither. I don't know anything <laughs> about him. I don't think he's going to win anything that involves hunger. I don't think so either. Uh, probably a lot of hungry fans in Cincinnati. They're number seven on my list. The Cincinnati Reds are probably the best team in what is probably the worst division in baseball, the NL Central. The Cardinals obviously took a big step back, losing Albert Pujols, uh, losing their manager to retirement. It seems like the team most likely to take advantage of that is the Cincinnati Reds. I think they're going to be the second best team in the National League this year. Dusty Baker is their manager there. Dusty Baker has been really close to a World Series before. With the San Francisco Giants, you remember his son almost got ran over at home plate in their last World Series run. But uh, the the Reds are a good team. Brandon Phillips, Scott Rowland, maybe some names that will jump out. And they have really good pitching. Uh, So I like the Reds. And I think that they're the best team in the NL Central and the seventh team most likely to win the World Series. My number six thing more likely to happen than the Mets winning a World Series is that Settlers of Catan tournaments replace poker on ESPN. Oh, I like that. I, I would watch it. Yeah, so would I. Uh, Settlers of Catan, I just downloaded the uh, iPad version of the app. Sweet. And I got spanked in my one and only <laughs> game by the computer. All right, my uh, number 16 most likely to win the World Series is the San Francisco Giants. They were the World Series champion two years ago now. Uh, they are my number one team in the American League West. 
Tim Lincecum is a big reason they're so high on the list. I love Tim Lincecum, love watching him pitch. Uh, another huge boost for the Giants this year is their star catcher, Buster Posey, who broke his leg in a home play collision last year, is 100% healthy and back and ready to lead this team to potentially a World Series. All right, my number five thing on the list. You might not like this one. Uh, this is my list of things more likely to happen than a Mets World Series. Interim coach Bill Parcells demotes Saints quarterback Drew Brees to backup because of a strong showing by Chase Daniel in the Hall of Fame game. Wow. <laughs> that would have to be a really, really good Hall of Fame game by Chase Daniel. Uh, my number five team most likely to win the World Series is my last National League team on the list, the Philadelphia Phillies. I think the Phillies, Jonah Carey talked about how poor – their lineup is, but I still think their pitching is going to be enough to lead them through the National League this year. When you have guys like Roy Halladay and Cliff Lee and Cole Hamels and Joe Blanton on in your rotation, nobody can match that. Nobody can. Jonathan Papelbon is an addition in the bullpen there, and Jim Tomei, Juan Pierre, Ty Wigginton give them a really strong bench. Chase Utley isn't around. Hopefully he comes back at some point. They're going to need him. But I still think they're the class of the National League. And um, they're my fifth most likely team to win the World Series, meaning I have four American League teams that I think are more likely to win it. Yeah, are there any, with Pujols, uh, are there any bats left in in the National League? The National League is really weak this year. Which is why teams like the Miami Marlins and the Atlanta Braves have a chance to win the world, to be in the World Series because anyone who makes the National League playoffs, look at I didn't have Washington on my list. They might make the National League playoffs. You know, somebody's got to win the Central. Someone's got to win the West. Any team who gets in in the National League is going to have a chance to be in the World Series. And once you're there, you have a chance to win it. Sure. Uh- my number four thing more likely to happen than a Mets World Series win is the world ends because of all that Mayan stuff. Hmm. You know, I heard that based on Le- Mayans not paying attention to leap year, their calendar ended a long time ago. So we made it. We did we it. We made it. Yeah, nice. I heard. So, But we'll see. Uh, Actually, that stuff would all happen in December anyway. So the Mets way, may have won by that point. But okay. They, but they won't. My number four team most likely to win the World Series is the Detroit Tigers. Uh, the Detroit Tigers, of course, the AL Central, probably the very easily should win that division. I don't think the Twins or the Indians or the Royals are really ready to compete. Actually, Sports Illustrated picks the Royals to finish second in that division. I think that means that they're the second best of a lot of crap. Uh, I think <laughs> Jeff the- Passan said they were a few years off. A few years ago, yeah. <laughs> on the very first episode of this show. Yeah, so they got to be getting close. But uh, Justin Verlander, obviously. Had a fantastic season last year, went 24-5, and 2.40 ERA, and a .92 whip. Uh, and he's going to carry this team again. He's going to get some help from Prince Fielder, who is a great addition in the offseason. And they're going to win the AL Central, I think, quite easily, which means they're going to be in the mix in the American League playoffs. All right, my number three thing more likely to happen than the Mets winning a World Series are the Miami Dolphins solved their quarterback issues by signing the one and only Brett Favre. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Imagine if Brett Favre gets his name back in there this season somehow. <laughs> he's he's going to be getting jealous of all the, the Tebow news. All right, my number three team most likely to win the World Series is the first team to 
walk on the field since the 1987 Red Sox and know that they were one strike away from winning the World Series the year before, and that is the Texas Rangers two times last year. They were one strike away from being World Series champion, and it didn't happen. Uh, Josh Hamilton's had a rough offseason, but you talked about not having bats in the American League. Listen to this lineup that the Texas Rangers have. They have even Ian Kinsler potentially batting uh, first. They have Josh Hamilton batting third, Michael Young batting fourth, Adrian Beltre batting fifth, Mike Napoli batting sixth, Nelson Cruz batting seventh. Just a fantastic lineup. Hugh Darvish was the uh, new Dice K this year, a guy that the Texas Rangers paid a lot of money just to be able to negotiate with and then eventually sign. He's going to be at the top of that uh, rotation, which lost uh, C.J. Wilson in the offseason, so he's going to have to replace him. I, I like Texas, and I think that they're the third team most likely to win the World Series this year. All right, my second uh, most likely or second thing more likely to happen than the Mets winning a World Series as a Jet, Tim Tebow plays safety, gets fined for an illegal helmet-to-helmet hit, suspended for a performance-enhancing drug. Thanks, Jesus. What about sex? I was waiting for you to say, oh, and then bang yeah. someone at the 50-yard line. I did miss the, the virgin thing. Yeah. He's excited to be a virgin. Yeah, of course he is. My uh, number two team most likely to win the World Series is the Anaheim Angels or the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim or whatever the hell they're called. Uh, they spent a lot of money this year, obviously, getting Albert Pujols, getting the before mentioned C.J. Wilson, who's going to be a part of a great rotation that features Jared Weaver and Dan Heron and Irvin Santana. It's a very it's a, it's a team that, look, at they've spent a lot of money the last few off-seasons. Vernon Wells, former $100 million player for the Toronto Blue Jays, is there. You know, Torrey Hunter is there. Albert Pujols is there. Kendris Morales is there. This is a team that's going to be really hard to ignore. They're the team that I think is the second most likely to win the World Series. My last thing, more likely than the Mets winning their first World Series since 1986, is the Pirates win the World Series. The Pirates. The Pirates. The Pittsburgh Pirates. That's right. We talked about that with John Kerry <laughs> a little bit, and he 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 thinks that it's very unlikely as well. <laughs> uh, all right, my number one team most likely to win the World Series is the New York Yankees. Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez are one year older, and it feels like this. there's a lot of urgency to win there in the sense that if it's not now, when? You know, the they're they're an old team. They're a veteran team. Uh, they're a team that has made some really smart decisions in the offseason for once. Instead of just throwing money blindly at whoever is named the best free agent in a given year. They've improved their rotation, as we talked about with Jonah Carey. And for the reasons talked about with Jonah Carey, for the reasons I just mentioned, I think the New York Yankees are the team most likely to win the World Series this year. We'll see how this list changes as... Uh, things evolve during the course of the season. I bet mine doesn't yours, change. No, yours is going to stick. Pretty... The Mets are still going to be pretty unlikely to win the World Series. Yeah, I don't. I, it'd be quite a story if they find their way into it, though. All right, let's take a break. That's the Sportscasters 10, and let's come back with an interview with the great Tim Layden. Our next guest is from Whitehall, New York, 
and is a graduate of Williams College, where he was a member of the basketball team. He has spent time working for the Schenectady Gazette, Albany Times Union, and Newsday. In 1994, he joined Sports Illustrated, where he is now a senior writer. At SI, he covers the Olympics, horse racing, the National Football League, and is currently covering the NCAA basketball tournament. Over the course of his distinguished career in journalism, he has won many awards, including an Eclipse Award for coverage of thoroughbred horse racing in 1987. In 2011, his book Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, The Ultimate Football Playbook, How Great Coaches Built Today's Games, was a revolutionary look at how the game of football has been developed by some of the smartest minds in the profession. He is making his second appearance on the podcast tonight. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Tim Layden. How are you doing today, Mr. Layden? Hey, good, guys. We're very excited, very excited to have you on the show today. First, we can't thank you enough for fitting us in. I know it's been a busy day for you, so we really, uh, we really appreciate that. A couple of small things I want to ask you. In your bio there, it said you spent some time uh, working in Schenectady and Albany, and I wonder if you ever spent much time covering athletics at Union, and if you know that for the first time ever, Union hockey has made the Frozen Four, and if that means anything to you at this point in your career. Yeah, you know, I, did, I actually did cover Union Hockey when I was in Schenectady, um, 79, 80, 81. And I think Union was playing Division Three at the time. Yeah, they were, yep. Um, they started out as Division One in the mid-'70s, and then they had some scandals, and uh, the program dropped back to Division Three for a while, and then they moved back up to Division One. And, uh, you know, it's an amazing story that they're uh, – that they're in the Frozen Four, and I, and I think they're playing Ferris State, correct. I think. Correct, yep, that's and I, I don't think Ferris State has been there before, but I'm not sure. No, and the, the incredible thing is the, the one regional, or the one semi-fi, national semifinal has two teams who have zero NHL draft picks, and on the other side of the bracket, it's Boston College versus Minnesota, and they have almost 30 between the, the two teams. Isn't so. that amazing? Yeah, it's a really and, amazing... And actually, you know, small world thing, you know, not only... Not only did I cover Union, but my father was a graduate of Union College, and my sister went to Union College. And on the other side, Boston College's captain is Tommy Cross, a senior defenseman, draftee of the Bruins. And he, his father, Tom Cross, uh, coached my son in high school hockey in Simsbury, Connecticut. Wow. So, I mean, I got all kinds of connections to this Frozen Four. Well, so do I. I got some more small world stuff for you. Uh, my brother played in the USHL, and his... Line mate in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, was a kid named Sam Coda, who's a freshman there. Uh, my brother's second year in the USHL, he played for Waterloo. His roommate, uh, Tyson Fulton, is also a freshman there. And a kid that he played minor peewee hockey league with uh, is a freshman there, Trevor Mangolia. He was, my brother was recruited by Boston College and ended up at Yale. So all kinds of crazy connections well, to the really, Frozen yeah, Four this stuff. year. You know, yeah, and I think and I think out near your way, RIT was in the Frozen Four. Yes, two or three years ago. Yep, I and think. about five years ago they were D three as well. So they've had a really impressive, uh, yeah, move from D one or from D three to D one. Yeah, and yeah. RIT, I actually have watched many a hockey games at their rink. The Frank J. Ritter. It's, a, it's actually a great place to see a hockey game. But yeah. we didn't call you for that. But that's really cool. There's all kinds of great little connections there, and. Uh, we're excited to have you on, partly because of all the basketball. Oh, one sure. more, one more small thing. So we were just watching the Sabres game, and I was, I was looking at my iPad, and I have, I'm a big Saints fan, and I have a, as my wallpaper is a cover 
uh, and it's a picture of Drew Brees, and it says more than football. And I looked, and I said, holy cow, guys, Tim Layden wrote this article. And we're going to talk to him in a half an hour. So that's another small thing I wanted to mention to you. Yeah. That article you wrote back in 2006. Yeah, uh, I've written a bunch of stories about Drew. Um, he's one of the athletes. Uh, see, I wrote about him when he was a sophomore, a junior at Purdue. I wrote about him when he was trying to beat out Flutie with the Chargers. I wrote about him in 06 when he brought the Saints back. And, and obviously I wrote a cover story on him when he was our Sportsman of the Year in 2010. So it's uh, he's a guy that I've had interactions with for more than a decade. What did you think about the uh, the Saints scandal, the punishment, and maybe Drew Brees' unique role this year is almost, he's always been described as far as the Saints as almost a, an extension of the coach on the field. He's going to have to almost take that to the next level this year, isn't he? Yeah, you know, that's a bunch of questions. I mean, the obviously the, the scandal, I mean, I feel very conflicted in a lot of ways about that, given Given where the NFL stands on the issue of player safety and, and the steps they've taken to try and protect people, I just don't see how they couldn't do something huge here. Right. Um, at the same time, you know, I mean, I, I just think that, that punishment and intimidation are, are such a part of the sport, and, you know, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I just, you know, I still think they're swimming upstream trying to take the violence out of football, but, you know, I, I commend them for it. And given all that and the fact that, that Sean Payton lied to them, you know, I just, you know, I think that they had to do this. I think Breeze is really upset about it, obviously, because mm-hmm. because of his relationship with, with, with Payton and because of his you know, his role in the offense. But, uh, you know, I, I just I don't see how they could do much different. Now, your colleague Don Banks and uh, John Clayton is another person. They, they, they're prepared to write the Saints off. You know, they've said that, in the light of these suspensions, they, they don't consider them contenders for the Super Bowl next year. Do you, do you think that that's the case as well, in your opinion? Wait, repeat that again? Uh, the question was just that, you know, Don Banks, who's a colleague of yours, and John Clayton from ESPN, both of them have, have said in columns that they, they don't consider the Saints to be Super Bowl contenders in the light of these punishments. And I was just wondering if that's your opinion as well, or do you think that the team can... can oh, yeah, you know... I think, I mean, now there's talk that Parcells is going to come in. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, if he decides to do that, and it's sort of his non-denial denials today that I saw, I mean, I, I think it seems like there's a good chance of that. I mean, then you're bringing in an experienced NFL hand. Um, I don't know who's going to call the plays. Um, I mean, Pete Carmichael has been calling the plays for right. a couple of years, but obviously it does go through Sean Payton's headset. Uh, so, I mean, I, you know, I think that, I mean, I still think that there's enough, of a wide open aspect to the NFL that, that I, I, mean, I, there's a knee jerk tendency to eliminate them immediately. But, but I just, I think that that is just that, you know, there's still an awful lot of talent on that roster uh, in an awful good division. But at the same time, I, you know, I just, I, I'm not ready to, to declare them non-contenders because of all this, but certainly it's a huge loss. Um, Super Bowl, I don't know. I mean, but at the, you know, Look where the Giants were this year. I mean, I just the NFL is so crazy and so unpredictable in many ways that I just wouldn't I just wouldn't rule them out at this point. The Sportscasters are here with Tim Layden, senior writer for Sports Illustrated. You can follow on Twitter at si Tim Layden. We we primarily wanted to do this spot because of 
how much you've covered the NCAA basketball tournament this year. We know you were in Pittsburgh the first weekend. You said you, you stuck with Ohio State last weekend. Let's start with them. Uh, number two seed in their regional, in the, fro- or in the final four this year. What is it about this Ohio State team? Uh, obviously, Sillinger is the big name there, but it's probably more than that. What is it that you see out of this Ohio State team that has allowed them to get the first four wins and only two wins away from an NCAA championship? I think everybody, um, I mean, I think it's pretty well agreed over the course of the season that they had as much talent as anybody in the country with the possible exception of Kentucky, with the definite exception of Kentucky. Um, so, I mean, I think that, and then seeing that talent up close, Sullinger's good. Um, I mean, I think Deshaun Thomas, uh, who's a, essentially a small forward type or even a on that roster where they really don't have two bigs, you know, he's, He's he's a very explosive scorer. Was probably going to go to the NBA and be a you know top fifteen pick. Um, Lenzel Smith Jr. is also a good shooter. They they have depth inside off the bench. Um, Amir Williams is a very solid player that got gave the minutes when Sullinger falls. And I think also Aaron Kraft, while not a dangerous offensive player by any means, is a very effective defensive player and really controls the other team's point guard and allows everybody else to be a little less attentive on defense and and to gamble and so i mean i I think that they have a lot of good things i think they have a lot of people that can score which is always huge and i think that with Kraft running their defense they're very effective there and uh you know i think of the three teams other than kentucky remaining i i think they have the best chance to to beat kentucky although you know we have to see if kentucky can can close the deal you know, we're from Buffalo, New York, and we're not that far from Syracuse. There's a lot of Syracuse graduates and fans here. A lot of them have said to me this week, you know, that game would have been a lot different if Fab Mello was there. Do you buy into that at all? Oh, uh, no, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, but he wasn't. Right. You know, so it's, uh, you know, you, you, you send out the guys that you're allowed to dress. And, you know, I, I thought that obviously that Syracuse played really well without him. Uh, but to, But then they finally ran into a team that had some inside scoring and some inside depth and and it really the lack of uh the the absence of fab Mello really showed in that game because syracuse really when you you know um christmas and uh katia are both they're limited players and syracuse's other long talented guys um are, are just you know chris joseph and cj fair they're not big guys they're not real power inside post players. So it just, you know, I think that they just were, they ran into a team that could overmatch them and overpower them, and then they weren't effective enough from the perimeter to make up for that. And, you know, I think the better team won that game. Um, and, and they wore them down in the last four minutes. And uh, I think with that, Mellow Syracuse is probably a great chance to get to the final and give Kentucky a great game. Without them, I think they went out when they should have gone out. You know, I'm looking at that bracket, that, that regional there, and, you know, one one thing that sticks out, and we had Luke Wynn on before the tournament, and he said that, you know, for him, this bracket was going to be about Florida State and their defense, and they barely beat St. Bonaventure, uh, were able to, to squeak that one out in the end, and then Cincinnati uh, beat them. Was that, a, was Florida State, is that, how disappointing was their tournament because I, I guess I had higher hopes there and obviously Luke Wynn did as well you talking about Connecticut no Florida State oh Florida State no but yeah I mean but again 
you know, they're a team that probably like a lot of college. I mean, I did not cover college basketball heavily during the regular season, so I caught snippets of Florida State, and I saw them play obviously in the ACC championship game, and and they look they look like a team that that could get all the way to the Final Four. But then you see them play forty minutes, and you see what their limitations are, um, and they just. You know, I mean, St. Bonaventure should have beaten them. Yep. I mean, St. Bonaventure had them. St. Bonaventure controlled that entire game until the last, you know, six minutes. And even then, St. Bonaventure had a possession down three late and and took a two. Um, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, Florida State just looked more limited to me. I'm sure it was a disappointment to them. But once you saw them play 40 minutes, I thought they weren't. They were not. They were not big enough inside, and they were not good enough outside. I mean, they just looked like a team, again, they looked like a team that would do really well to get to the Sweet 16, and they didn't. And they just, you know, they just, I don't think they were good enough. That's all. I mean, I'm sure they're disappointed, but I don't think it's because they played below their best ability level. I think I just don't think they were that good. And, you know, when you look at the entire ACC, Duke wasn't that good. And, and Carolina, without Kendall Marshall, certainly wasn't that good. With Kendall Marshall, again, like Syracuse with Fab Mello, I think they're a national championship threat. But, but in each case, that one guy is just a huge loss. Is that, what does that say about college basketball right now? You know, it's, it's the one-and-done era. There's not as much maybe high-end talent in the tournament. Have you seen it on the court, too? Have you, have you noticed? I've heard a lot of people say the basketball in this tournament hasn't been very good. There's a lot of games played in the 40s and 50s. Uh, do you th- I'm listening to you say, and you say, you know, it's this one guy, and it ruins a team as good as Syracuse or as, as good as North Carolina. Are we talking about a trend here in college basketball in this one-and-done era? Yeah, I think we're talking about a few different things there. Uh, you know, like with Syracuse, they had a lot of they, – they have, you know, uh, certainly, you know, Deion Waiters was an NBA player, and they didn't lose him. Um, I don't know, Scoop Jardine, probably not. They, they have several guys that will get a chance to play in the NBA, and, and Waiters is a guy who will absolutely play in the NBA. Um, so, I mean, I think that was almost like a construction, uh, you know, how the team is constructed – and what they were lacking more than the overall talent on the team in terms of the loss of Mello. Um, the low-scoring games, I think, is a combination of fewer really premier players on the, on, the, on the court at any one time in any game. But it's also a product of a lot of the offensive sets that have come about now with a lot of high pick-and-roll uh, where teams try to just set up a defender for a screen over and over and over again and use up a lot of the shot clock doing it. And by the end, by the end of it, you know, they're, they're down to five seconds on the shot clock. And if you stack up possessions like that, you're going to get low-scoring games. Um, but, but all in all, you know, I, was, I was on a Twitter exchange the other night with some people talking about, I don't know how we got there, but we were talking about the UNLV-Duke teams of the early 90s and that great 91 game that they played, which... 21 years ago now, but there were six lottery picks on the floor wow. between those two teams. Now, some of them didn't make it. Bobby Hurley didn't make it because he got in a terrible car crash. Right. Christian Leitner turned out to be average. Stacey Ogman was a minor disappointment, but Larry Johnson was an all-pro. Um, uh, Grant Hill, obviously still in the league. Greg Anthony had a long career. Um, you know, so, and, and, uh, and that was six lottery picks. There were something like 11 guys on the floor in that game at one time or another who, who, who wore an NBA uniform. 
Um, and, and there are many other examples like that. I mean, you can go all the way back to when Jordan Perkins and Worthy were playing for North Carolina and Patrick Ewing was playing for, for Georgetown. I mean, it's, it certainly is a very different year. Now, guys could always leave right out of high school, but that didn't happen as often. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, in this era, there's no question that there's, there are fewer, there are more players with flaws and holes in their game on the floor than there were before the one-and-done era. Yeah, and you mentioned that 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 uh, that Duke and and UNLV game, and we talked to Gene Wojciechowski before the tournament, who just wrote a very terrific book. I thought about the uh, Duke and Kentucky game uh, with yeah, the which creation. Was the, that was the next year. Yeah, that was the following year, and then a now, few... that was a Kentucky team that didn't have a lot of NBA players on it. No, just the one, right? Just. No. Yeah, just one, Mashburn. Yeah, yeah, just Mashburn. But then a few years after that, they had maybe the best college basketball team that I've ever seen. Was it the 95 or 96 team? I mean, that was a loaded, loaded team. And I was going to ask you if you wanted to try to compare it all, what kind of level of basketball team that was in 95 or 96 compared to this team and what they bring this year. Well, I mean, I'm trying to think of who was on that 95, 96 team and, and uh, you know, for Kentucky. Um, I'm going to bring it up. I know it was a stacked, stacked team. Yeah, I mean, they, they were. I think there have been a lot of teams over in in that period, from the from the early '80s into the into the early 2000s. There were a lot of great. I, again, we were talking about the Duke team from 2002 that got beat in the Sweet 16. Um, that had um, Boozer, Dunleavy, uh, Jay Williams before before the knee injury, Chris Duhon. All on one team. That was the team that lost to Indiana. Is that the yeah, Indiana, they lost lost? Indiana? Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, that's another team with four lottery picks on the floor. One team. Right. And and you, you certainly don't see that now. Although I, you know, I don't know what are we dealing with with Kentucky this year. I mean, probably. You know, certainly, obviously, Davis, probably Kid Gilchrist, um, maybe Terrence Jones. There could be three lottery picks on that team. So the ninety-five, ninety-six Wildcats were thirty-four and two, uh, which is a very similar record to what the team had this year. They right. beat in the final four. They won eighty-one, seventy-four over Massachusetts, and then seventy-six, sixty-seven over Syracuse. They had three picks in the top nineteen: Antoine Walker, Tony Delk, and Walter McCarty. And then they yeah. had the twenty-third pick in the second round, Mark Pope. Yeah. So four NBA players on that team. It was a very, it was a very talented team. I don't, I don't know if history will. It's interesting because you get into that thing where you try and evaluate a team based on what they were as college seniors, and then it's tempting to say, okay, well, what did they become as pros? And uh, and I don't think that's fair. You know, those guys were great college players, and I think it's similar to what they have now. You're um, in. Oh, go ahead. The, those guys were older, though. Right. That team you're talking about. These guys. We're talking about Davis as a freshman, and Terrence Jones is a sophomore, and Kid Gilchrist is a, is a freshman. So I mean, it's a very different uh, it's a very different dynamic now. I mean, these are guys who are going to do. They're still developing players. How so it's, it's it's really hard to compare. Is is coaching one of the most important parts of college basketball now? I mean, you look at this Final Four. There's huge, huge star power in the coaches. Is that are we getting is college basketball turning to a sport where the biggest stars are maybe the coaches? Well, I think I think in a way, um, I mean, college basketball the coaches have always been huge stars. Um, 
you know, if you go back to John Wooden, Al McGuire, people like that. I mean, they because they're they're the one. Even when you had players staying four years, you had coaches staying twenty five years. So I mean, I think that you know, it's always been it's always been a coach's game. But but I but I understand your point with players only staying one year, then you have to give the coaches are obviously going to take on even 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 greater significance. And and also they have a, the unique requirement that they have to try and like what Cal Perry's done and obviously he's a polarizing figure in the game but to have to build a team with freshmen every year is not easy and uh, I mean this year he's added three guys into the mix with with Kill Gilchrist and Davis and Teague and uh, you know at least a couple guys stayed now two years ago they had four one and done which is you know the, you're basically starting over and, and I think any coach would tell you that even the guys that don't like Cal would tell you that that's not easy to do. Well, you're down in Kansas today. We're talking to you. I believe you're in a hotel in Kansas City. You spent the day with the Jack with the Jayhawks. What what impressed you about this Kansas team? The the thing that I've learned as I've as I've studied them more and talking to their guys today is really, you know, they are really the they're the really the outsider in this Final Four in a lot of ways. I mean, Louisville is in a way, but Louisville won the Big East and. Uh, Kansas was the was the Big Twelve um, regular season champion, but they lost a ton of talent. I mean, this was this is a team that is comprised largely of guys who played less than five minutes a game a year ago, and if they they aren't guys who were McDonald's All Americans coming in as freshmen, likely one and done. They're guys who are on this team, you know, sophomores and juniors who were on this team last year, but but very minimal contributors, and from that mix of people. Bill Self and the older guys on that team have put together a team that's 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 in the Final Four and seems to have a certain, you know, a certain uh, chemistry about it, for lack of a better term. And uh, you know, I think they're the least, I don't know, either them them or Louisville is the least talented of the four teams. But certainly they're not. You know, Thomas Robinson's very good, but but he's surrounded by guys that that are not of the quality that that Kentucky surrounds Anthony Davis with. And uh, but, but there's something going on with Kansas. They got a, they got the belief thing, the chemistry thing going on. And whether it's going to be good enough to beat Ohio State is probably doubtful. But but they do have something going, and and it's interesting. And you know, two of the last three years they were a number one seed, and three years ago they were the number one seed, or two years ago the number one seed in the country in the entire tournament. They got beat in the second round by Northern Iowa. So I mean, it's obviously. You know, they're coming off a couple of very disappointing years, and last year in the Elite Eight of Virginia Commonwealth. So, I mean, it's 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 interesting where they are, and, and they really appreciate the chance to do this as a sort of an underdog. Yeah, you kind of mentioned some of the disappointing losses they've had in this tournament. I don't even think you mentioned the Bucknell one, which sticks out. What sure. is it about this team, do you think, that was able to put all those negative memories from the tournament behind them? Is it the chemistry, you think? Yeah, I mean, this this team, obviously, you know, um, the losses that, that they experienced were, um, the, the ones that really hurt them were Northern Iowa and VCU. The, the, the Bucknell loss they weren't around for. Um, you know, I think that, I just think sometimes, and, and Self was trying to put a, Bill Self, the coach, was trying to put a, a finger on this for me today when we were talking, and I, I just think that sometimes, you know, it's it's just, I mean, you got to forget. You got to remember how young these guys are, and I think sometimes it's just more fun to to overachieve a little bit, you know, to do something that's not really expected of you, as opposed to trying to live up to what is expected. 
and it's a it's a fine line there. But and at Kansas, there's always huge expectations. But but this was not a team that people thought, okay, they can go 36 and 0 and just blow through the national championship. They just weren't perceived that way, and they they have outplayed those expectations. And I I just think they're riding that, and and it's fun. If we get a great game on Saturday and Ohio State plays their A game, Kansas plays their A game, certainly Kansas would be the underdog. But if they were to win a game that was played at a high level as opposed to just winning a game where Ohio State plays a stinker or something like that, what would it be that went so right for Kansas they were, they were able to overcome all the talent at Ohio State and win that game? Well, I mean, I think that um, you know, there's so many little things. I mean, I think if they could get Sullinger into foul trouble like Syracuse did, even on a phantom foul, um, that would be very helpful to get him off the floor. Um, if 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 Ohio State just doesn't shoot the ball quite as well as they did, you know, Lenzel Smith made three huge three-point baskets against Syracuse in the second half. All three of them at the end of the shot clock that were basically bailouts. You know, I mean, they, they it would all three of those possessions were dead, and and he made threes to finish them off and and get them get them a three point three points when it looked like they were going to get none. Mm. And if they don't do that quite as effectively, if they could get Kraft in foul trouble. And on their own side, Tyshawn Taylor is 0 for 17 on three pointers in the tournament. Wow. And he's got he's got to make a couple. I mean he's a very streaky player anyway, but he can't go 0 for six or 0 for seven uh from three in this in this game and, and have them win. It's just uh they just need him to make a few shots. You know, the only team that we haven't really talked much about in the in the Final Four here is Louisville. You, you mentioned them briefly, but, you know, my partner and I were talking about this earlier. You know, it seems like Kentucky is just an unbeatable force right now. They're rolling through this tournament, but you can almost see the story already written about how Louisville could pull it off. You know, you could see Patino standing there at the end of the game as the former coach from Kentucky having pulled off this great upset with a, you know, a, with their biggest rival in Louisville, the same state. It's almost like the story is there for them. They just have to figure out a way to do it. Do you see any chance or do you think Kentucky is just too stacked? Well, I think Kentucky's too good for them, but I mean if if Louisville could defend Kentucky into a what Louisville's going to do, they have a couple things in their favor. The thing that is hugely not in their favor is is size, athleticism, and and overall talent. All three of those things are very much in Kentucky's favor, and those are things you'd like to have in your favor. Um, now, the things that might be in Louisville's favor, I think Patino's a better game coach, a better game bench coach than Calipari. I mean, Patino's one of the best game bench coaches in history, um, and he's he's gonna he is going to make adjustments and 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 and, and work the game well. And the other thing is Louisville defends very well. And if they can, if they can somehow defend Kentucky, you know, you, you want to think back to the West Virginia game two years ago when Kentucky had Wall and Cousins and that gang. Um, you know, they, West Virginia zoned them and, and basically got them into a game that they didn't want to play, a lot of stand-up jump shots, a lot of, you know, John Wall missed a bunch of threes that game, and, and they just got them a little bit off rhythm and, and got them missing some shots, and maybe Louisville can do that to this Kentucky team. Maybe they can get Marcus Teague to, to turn it over, take some bad shots. Um, I mean, I think that that's, that's their best chance, is to, is to just get Kentucky playing a game that it doesn't want to play and, and then maybe get it late enough that they get nervous. Um, 
But, I mean, Indiana played Kentucky lights out for a half, and uh, but it wasn't enough. And you, you gotta you gotta play the full forty, and and that's asking a lot. It sounds like you think it's going to be a Kentucky versus Ohio State final. I mean, obviously Kentucky being the number one team in the in the tournament is going to be the favorite there. Uh, maybe it's the same question I asked you about Louisville, but we're looking ahead, sure. But if Ohio State can get themselves in a national final against Kentucky, is the formula basically the same as how Louisville is going to attack them, or does the athleticism and talent that Ohio State have lend them a different formula to try to attack Kentucky? Yeah, I think they have. Yeah, I think they have a better chance to match up, particularly with Sullinger. I mean, we'll see if Sullinger can take the ball inside and score on Anthony Davis. I mean, nobody's done that all year. Um, maybe maybe Sollinger can, and I think Deshaun Thomas presents a matchup for anybody, including the Kentucky guys. Um, you know, he he can score, so I mean that's a factor. And and again, a huge factor is Aaron Kraft's ball defense. He is going to give Marcus Teague a very tough night, and he's going to give anybody a tough night the way he defends on the ball. And maybe again, Ohio shoots the ball well. Sollinger plays a big game against Davis, and Kraft forces Teague into mistakes. I can see that being a close game without question. And again, Kentucky is young and they have, you know, if they get into a close game, even against Louisville, but certainly against Ohio State, if they're both in the final, you wonder how those young guys will, will respond. And uh, on that stage, it's just, it's, it's an unknown quantity and it'll be interesting to see. The sportscasters are with the great Tim Layden, who you can find on Twitter at SI Tim Layden. We're finishing up here with him. I think that sport. We think that Sports Illustrated covers this tournament better than everyone. We're huge Luke Wynn fans. We love his at the tournament blog. I love the fact that Pablo Astori and yourself have done a great job covering the tournament and all the other moving parts that Sports Illustrated has. It's incredibly deep. You guys got the deepest bench in the NCAA tournament, I think. Uh, let's get you out of here on this. It's and I want to talk to you again, hopefully before you leave for London, but are you looking forward to the Olympics this summer? Are you looking ahead to that at all? I know that's a big part of what you do for SI. Well, no, sure. I love the Olympics. Um, it's just, uh, you know, it's the week of the Final Four, so it's not, I mean, I've actually been working on setting up a few Olympic interviews, and uh, I have a few stories in the can that I have to write, but, but they're just on hold right now mm-hmm. um, because I have to get this, we have to get through the basketball tournament first, and uh yeah, and I and I cover horse racing, which is a small audience sport, but I do have to pay some attention to it in April as we get ready for the Kentucky, Kentucky Derby. Derby but, yeah. but once we get to, you know, once we get heavily into May and June, it's going to be uh, a lot of track and field getting ready for the Olympics. I'm working on a story in Usain Bolt right now, and uh, you know, I just think it's. Uh, I mean, I love the Olympics. I love going. You know, this will be my 11th Olympics. Wow. And uh, and I think the I think London is going to be great. You know, it's an international city. It's. Uh, it's going to be a very different vibe from from Beijing, and and I and I just think it's going to be it's going to be exciting and and really just just you know a lot of energy to it, which Beijing didn't really have. Are you like me? Did it break your heart that they couldn't figure out how to make luck without the poor horses passing away and having to stop that show? I thought it was going to be great for horse racing. I'm so disappointed that there's not going to be a second season. Maybe you didn't watch it. Maybe it maybe it's not on your radar, but maybe as someone who covers the sport, did it it disappoint you at all? Yeah, I mean, I loved the show. Yeah, so Um, did I. I thought it was tremendous. A lot of people, you know, it wasn't doing that well in terms of audience. Um, Critics mostly liked it. Some really loved it. 
Um, I reviewed it for SI. I really loved it. I thought it, the acting and the, and the tone were tremendous. Um, you know, it's just it's just a shame. Um, I don't I don't know. Maybe someday we'll know whether HBO was willing to, to bail on it because it was doing poorly and use the uh, the deaths of the horses as a as a sort of as a scapegoat, or if uh, or if or if they really were knuckling under pressure to uh, to pee the lobby. Um, it's a, it's an odd thing and disappointing. I thought I really thought, you know, I just thought that if the show could build an audience, I thought I could go for four or five years, and I, I really liked it, and I'm disappointed. I'm right with you on that. Uh, well, this was a lot of fun. We went all over the map. We talked a little college hockey in Schenectady. We talked about the NCAA basketball tournament. We talked about the New Orleans Saints. You're going to be in New Orleans this weekend. And we talked about the Olympics and horse racing. I couldn't ask for anything more. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. We look forward to reading the magazine at midnight tonight, finding out what you have in there from last week. And we look forward to next week and getting your impressions on what we hope will be a great Final Four. Thank you very much, Mr. Yeah. Layden. Yeah, it's fun, guys. Thanks a lot. Always enjoy it. Thank you very much. Yep, we'll see you. All right, I want to thank Tim Layden for joining us on the podcast, taking time out of his busy day in Lawrence, Kansas, to fit us in. It's really an honor, and we have to thank Tim for that. All right. In a minute, we are going to interview Roy McGregor, the author of what has been our book club book of the month for March, Wayne Gretzky's Ghost and Other Tales from a Lifetime of Hockey. I really enjoyed it, and you're going to hear that in the interview that I recorded earlier with Roy, and you're also going to hear just a lot of enthusiasm about the game, and it was just really exciting. So I hope you got a chance to read it, and if you haven't, please pick it up and support Roy. We mentioned this last week. We're going to mention it again. <laughs> we have a very thick copy of Martin Rooney, the creator of Training for Warriors, Wario Cardio, Cardio, a revolutionary metabolic training system for burning fat, burning muscle, and getting fit. Or building muscle, excuse me. Uh, look at If you want this, it's still up for grabs. Email us to sportscasters at gmail.com. Surprisingly, no one put in a claim for that last week. Nobody wants warrior warrior abs. Nobody wants to get pumped up out there. Yeah. All right. We are very close to April, which means it's time to name a book club book of the month for the month of April. And I have two right now that we are trying to set up with the publisher and the author to take a part in the program. So it's going to be one or the other. It's going to be both. Maybe it's going to be neither. But these are the books that you can get a head start potentially on reading. And they're probably the two biggest sports books that are out there right now. The first one is The Big Miss, My Year's Coaching Tiger Woods by Hank Haney, golf pro, former coach. Tiger Woods made the rounds at ESPN yesterday. We have information sent out to the publisher, Random House. We're waiting to hear back from them, see if Mr. Haney is going to be available to be on the show at the end of the month. And I will let you know, but in the meantime, if you want his book, The Big Miss, My Years Coaching Tiger Woods, seems to be the talk of the sports world when it comes to nonfiction writing. The second book that would be at the tip of that tongue is Don't Put Me In, Coach, My Incredible NCAA Journey from the End of the Bench to the End of the Bench by Mark Titus, who formerly played at The Ohio State University and currently writes for Grantland. I think this book is funny. Um, it's supposed to be good. I emailed Mark. Mark emailed me back. 
and I emailed him back, and <laughs> I'm waiting to find out if Mark wants his book to be a part of the Sportscasters Book Club Book of the Month program. One way or another, it seems like Mark is going to be on this podcast to talk about this book. So this is what's going to happen with that book. Either Mark's going to be on next week just to talk about it, talk about what he's seen at the uh, Final Four, talk about his work at Grantland, or he's going to say, let's do this, let's make this a book club book of the month, and let's you and your readers read it, and I'll be on the end of April. So two books to consider. The Big Miss, My Years Coaching Tiger Woods by Hank Haney, and Don't Put Me in Coach, My Incredible NCAA Journey from the End of the Bench to the End of the Bench by Mark <laughs> Titus. Let's take a break and come back with a member of basically a, a, a Knight of Canada, essentially. You know, he's basically knighted. Oh, as right, it's yeah. done in Canada, but it's different. The Royal Honor of Canada. But uh, let's take a break and come back with Roy McGregor. Our next guest is from Huntsville, Ontario, and is a graduate of Laurentian University. He is one of the most established and acclaimed writers to ever appear on this podcast. He is the author of over 40 books, a mix of fiction, nonfiction, sports, and politics. His latest, Wayne Gretzky's Ghosts and Other Tales from a Lifetime in Hockey, is a greatest hits-type collaboration of his very best hockey writing. He has been one of Canada's most talented journalists for years and has worked for the National Post, the Ottawa Citizen, the Toronto Star, and McLean's Magazine. Today, he writes for the Globe and Mail, Canada's national newspaper. He has won numerous awards for journalism, including two national newspaper awards, several national magazine awards, and twice the ACTRA Award as the best television drama writer in the country. In 2005, he was named an officer in the Order of Canada and was described in the citation as one of Canada's most gifted storytellers. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the talented, distinguished, and incredible Roy McGregor. How are you doing today, Mr. McGregor? Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm doing I'm very well. I'm very excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. Um, I, let's start with this, just real small. I, I played the Tragically Hip Three Pistols. always been my favorite uh, hip song. And the reason I played that one is because I read in a bio that you've had a somewhat lifelong fascination with Tom Thompson, who... Gord Downey mentions right off the top there as having came traveling past. At least he was pretty sure. Uh, t- <laughs> tell me a little bit about uh, that Tom Thompson fella that I always have uh, heard in that Tragically Hip song. Well, I actually have a family connection that um, my uh, great uncle Roy was uh, a doctor and my his brother Tom McCormick was my grandfather. He was a park ranger in Algonquin Park. And uh, Roy McCormick married a woman called Marie Trainer, who also lived in Huntsville, which is where I grew up. And Tom Thompson was engaged to be married to Marie Trainer's sister, Winifred. So I knew Winifred, who had been uh, Tom's uh, fiancée. Uh, he'd left her... 13 or 14 Tom Thompson paintings, but she kept them wrapped up in newspaper and stashed in a six-quart basket 
in her upstairs apartment, which did not even have uh, hot running water, didn't have central heating, or no luxuries whatsoever. Those paintings today would be worth about $25 million. Wow. Now, is that is that a topic you, you've written one of your 40 books about? Two. Two. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote a novel called Canoe Lake, which was about uh, thinly veiled the story of the romance of Tom and, and Winifred. And then just this last year, I had out a book called Northern Light, and that's the uh, enduring mystery of Tom Thompson and the woman who loved him, in which I was able to use the resources of uh, uh, several forensic scientists and prove that Tom Thompson's grave is up in Algonquin Park in a little backwoods area off of Canoe Lake rather than where the family thinks he's buried, which uh, is in Leith, Ontario, over by Owen Sound. So he's really buried about... Uh, 150 miles from where they think he's buried. Wow. Well, I'm going to have to. I'm only a few minutes from the Peace Bridge, so I'm going to have to maybe take a trip this weekend to the Canadian bookstore because you got me fascinated. That's uh, a great story. I I mentioned just how much I enjoyed, and, I, and I've been saying it on the podcast all week, how much I've enjoyed Wayne Gretzky's Ghost and other tales from a lifetime of hockey. It's a real – it's one of those books. It's just real easy to read. You don't – you know, you don't have to – you don't have to spend hours and hours at a time. You can kind of come in and out and pick out a topic that maybe interests you. I guess my first question about it is, when do you know that it's time to put together a collaboration like this? When, when do you know that, that you know it's time for, for the greatest hits record, so to speak? I don't think you really do know. I think that uh, you have to determine at what point is it a valid exercise. And actually, the public will decide that because it would depend on whether or not it's sold and, and they purchased it. But in terms of material, you know, after writing about hockey for around 40 years, I probably have enough material to fill five or six or maybe ten of those books. So I just went through everything that I'd ever written, and I thought, oh, I like this, I like that, or this was fun. Or maybe somebody would like to read about Brian Trache when he was a rookie or Jean Beliveau after he'd retired and uh, put them all together, and it seems to have worked better than I had, had anticipated. Was that the ultimate trip down memory lane for you? A lot of it was, you know, to, to be able to write about uh, when I was a kid, a, little, a young kid playing against Bobby Orr, to be able to write about that kind of an experience, and then later to be able to write about uh, John Beliveau telling the story about how he turned down the chance to be Governor General of Canada, which is the highest office we have in our country. He turned it down because he decided his granddaughters needed to have a father figure in their lives and told the story about how their father, a police officer in Montreal area, had taken his own life, leaving two very young daughters with, with no male to, to look up to at the time. So Jean Beliveau turned down the greatest honor this country can offer in order to help his grandchildren. A very honorable man. You know, you mentioned John, and then you mentioned Bobby Orr, but then there's also stuff about Alexander Dagg, and then there's something about a contemporary like Daniel and Henrik Sedin. How important was the balance of the eras to you? Fairly important to the editor of the book, Craig <laughs> Payette. He wanted to be able to span that uh, long distance, but also to have something that was much more modern. So even though at one point the book had been put together, Later on, we culled it a bit, took out some pieces, and put in things like the column on Brad Marchand and the piece on the Sedine twins so that it would have that feel of, of being right up to date as, in terms of last year's Stanley Cup final. 
Yeah, I, that was one thing I, I just I felt like, you know, it was really a, a trip through the years, so to speak. And I felt like at any given moment I could put myself into a certain era in, in NHL history. Do you, do you have a favorite? Is there a, is there a time that you look back on your career where the NHL was just at its peak to you? I think so. I think in the 1980s it was the most fun where you had that kind of fire wagon hockey and it was all attack and Gretzky was getting 212 points and you had Mike Bossy getting nine 50 goal seasons in a row. Some really tremendous talent. You had the Europeans starting to come in. You didn't have Russians yet, really. I guess there was one in the 1980s or a few by the very end of the 1980s. But it was just a great time for hockey. I would say the worst time for hockey was very clearly the 1970s Broad Street Bullies time and the 1990s when it became basically a rodeo out there, just rope them and hang on, water skiing, some of the players used to call it. Right. Yeah, actually, you mentioned the Broad Street Bullies. They are one of the two teams that defeated the Buffalo Sabres, where I am, uh, for a Stanley Cup. So that was also a very disappointing uh, ultimate Yes, well, I remember us. also being in the, in the odd when that uh, – Illegal goal was scored by Brett Hull, oh. and everybody, everybody in the media, at least most people, I think, knew that this had happened. But uh, what happened was that the chaos, the goal went in, uh, the gates opened, the NHL officials ordered the gates open so they could bring out the Stanley Cup. So by the time they realized that this had been a goal that should have absolutely been disallowed, it was too late to stop. Yeah. It was a chaos. It was chaos, as you say. I'd say if I were a Buffalo. A resident or a Buffalo Sabres fan, I would consider that uh, almost a crime unforgivable that I would turn off hockey after that. <laughs> well, we do ab- absolutely consider it that, and you know, it's maybe not unique to our building, but every time Gary Bettman steps foot in it, he, he does get booed, although I, I think he doesn't make a habit of stepping foot in it very often. Uh, you know, it's funny, I know the guy who, who opened that gate. I know the Zamboni driver who was standing down there that that opened it when he was ordered to by the NHL, and uh, he he still cries about it to this day, as uh, you know, not really understanding at the time that that was gonna, you know, he he didn't realize being at the opposite end that that there was even a potential controversy at all. So, oh, yeah, it's that's like, an awful thing to have to live. That's not his fault. Yeah, absolutely. So he luckily nobody really knows. You know, it's not like a Steve Bartman uh, case where people are harassing him for opening the door or something like that. Right. Uh, you know, you decided to call the book Wayne Gretzky's Ghost, and you mentioned, I think, just by talking to you for a couple minutes and hearing some of the names that you mentioned, like Bobby Orr and Jean Bellevue, are those are those your favorite players, or is there a couple other guys you maybe want to mention as some of the players that have just awed you in watching hockey all these years? Well, Sidney Crosby certainly does now um, when you, when he's able to play, and Ovechkin. Uh, in the, in that series of three years ago when he and Crosby just basically went at it mano a mano 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 uh they've they've enthralled me i think that uh, if you go back a long way that you get back to the uh, trotje and and bork and and people like that so that individuals have always been been intriguing there just are some very nice people in hockey that you you see beyond what the, what they are as uh, as players uh, timo Solani and he Buddy who covers hockey will tell you that this is probably the nicest, most decent person they've ever dealt with in the game, and so you naturally end up with an affinity and and, a, and liking them. Anyone who would uh, not admire the way Wayne Gretzky played the game, I think, knows little or cares little about hockey, and that's just uh, being foolish. 
when Gretzky was at his best, just as when Lemieux was at his best, you're seeing hockey played at a level that probably no one else has ever taken it to, apart from those kinds of players like Orr and and uh, Gretzky and Lemieux, and I think Crosby can fit into that very, very narrow opening as well. You know, one thing I realized when I was reading this book is that you watch hockey than, than, with a different eye than I do. You, you have an ability to watch a game and, and to be able to pick out those threads that could turn into these beautiful stories that ended up in the book. And I guess I want to ask you, as you're watching the last 10 or 15 games of this season and we get into the playoffs, well, it's even less, probably about seven games now, and then as we get into the playoffs, what are some things that you're keeping that keen eye on that you think could turn into a story that might be in Wayne Gretzky's Ghost Part 2? Well, I always am intrigued by the way the game is played and, and coaching strategies. And I think that uh, hockey journalism, especially in my country and Canada, is, has uh, completely confused what uh, hockey coverage should be about. They've, they obsess on the minutiae. They talk about uh, how a contract breaks down. They talk endlessly about how many game suspensions so-and-so should get. And they speculate, and, and basically they've turned themselves into the stories. They're not telling stories about players hardly at all anymore. And there's no one, hardly anyone there, who's actually analyzing how the game is played. We have uh, Don Cherry on Hockey Night in Canada talking every single week for a good portion of the evening about the games that he's supposed to be watching. He obviously doesn't even watch hockey anymore because he, when he talks about things that kids should be doing and that, it's often directly the opposite of what's actually happening on the ice. For example, uh, he went on for years and years about how you must get out of the way and let the goalie see it. Right. Uh, you know, don't stand there like a, a, a shorebird with one foot up in the air and, and bucks will bounce off you. Well, over the last uh, two seasons in particular, the entire strategy, defensive strategy of hockey has changed to the point where everyone is expected to block shots. It used to be the odd block shot, uh, shot blocker in hockey, and then there was a time when there might be one in each team, and often two. Now you've got 22 guys out there who are supposed to be blocking shots, and it's really dramatically changed the game so bad. So, so now you have these huge goaltenders in that, whereas before you had the tiny little guys in that. You have huge guys there, and the coach doesn't care how the puck gets there. He doesn't care if it goes off 13 or 14 bodies. He'd rather take that chance of a dot getting there than, than uh, give anyone a, an open shot or an open opportunity to make a cross-crease pass. So there's all kinds of changes in the game that are happening now. Rushes are entirely different now. The lateral drop passes, some teams are using it to, to tremendous success. they get two different levels of speed going up. One is the puck carrier taking up the, the puck, and he kind of slows down, but then he, he drops the puck back to someone going at full speed, and that often catches the other defense back in their heels. So yeah, this I wish people would talk more about things like that. They don't, and I think they're failing the hockey audience by not paying more attention to the players in the game and less attention to the, as I call it, the insignificant minutiae of hockey. It's funny you mentioned that style of, of play because the Sabres often implement that on the power play as one of their main breakouts. They'll have a guy carry the puck up to the blue line, and then he'll slow down and he'll drop the puck back to someone trailing with speed, and that's how they have had a lot of success gaining entries, and it's kind of since they've started it, we've seen a little bit of improvement on the power play. So that's certainly something I've noticed. Uh, I want to ask you about Don because you mentioned him, and maybe his most recent controversy, his battle with with Brian Burke and his 
displeasure in the number of Ontario-born hockey players and the Toronto Maple Leafs. I know, you know, Don, if nothing else, he, he made me think. I mean, I, I thought about it for a second when he when he mentioned it. And uh, I just wonder what what's your take on uh, their kind of feud. And do you put anything into it or do you think it's just two guys who dislike each other so much that they're just blindly throwing punches at this point? I don't uh, put much stock in it because I'm one of the people who've tuned out Don Cherry. I think he's been harmful to hockey, and I think that he's very, very, very much out of touch with today's game. And I think the public has uh, lost interest in him, except for some who, who find him intriguing as a buffoon. I don't think that he relates too much to the hockey of today anymore. And uh, I think the CBC made a rather drastic error when they signed him to a three, three-year three extension. There should have been a, an appropriate uh, and happy farewell and thank you for your previous work. But we're moving in a new direction, just as the game has long since moved in directions that you don't seem to follow. You know, we... we... We, we love hockey on this show maybe more than any podcast in the United States. And we spend a half an hour, we try to, each week talking to someone different in the world of hockey, a writer, a broadcaster, or maybe even a player. And I wonder, who, who interests you? You know, you've tuned out Don Cherry, and I understand that. Who have you tuned into recently? Who are some of the writers or broadcasters that you think have put aside the minutia a little bit and are, are watching hockey with that keen eye that you developed over the years maybe not to the same degree though i think most impressive lately has been ray ferraro who was quite uh, intelligent at the world juniors i thought which i also covered pierre mcguire has uh, a lot of tremendous insight into the game he's got an encyclopedia type uh, brain when it comes to uh, where players came from where they are now and uh, a lot of insight in how it's played. I like uh, listening to Ken Hitchcock talk about how the game is played. He's among the best coaches for, for talking about that kind of thing. I like the writing of uh, people like uh, Michael Farber in Sports Illustrated, and Cam Cole out you know, on the West Coast in Vancouver. And, uh, I mean, I should be careful on, on, on listing people, but Wayne Scanlon here in Ottawa, there's just so many that are, are doing some very good writing on the game. Television, I'm not so keen on. I, th- I think that uh, Hockey Night in Canada has become largely a program about itself and uh, has lost its, uh, it taken its eye off the ball or off the puck, except that it has uh, certain people who do an excellent job, like Elliot Friedman, for example. He's, he's trying his best to do exactly those kinds of things that I'm talking about, and I wish him more power. But recently, it's been Ferrero has been uh, quite insightful, and I hope he continues to grow as a broadcaster. It's nice to watch. You know, the National Hockey League, I think, has made some mistakes here in the United States. And in one that crept up recently, we, we mentioned Sidney Crosby and his struggle to kind of come on and stay on to the rink. And this last time that he made a comeback here on the NHL Network in the United States, uh, you know they didn't they didn't do much in terms of covering it exclusively, and then the NBC Sports Network, who has the contract here, did play the game. But instead of sending a crew out, they uh, you know just simulcast Roots, which is a network in in Pittsburgh, and showed the home broadcast there. Does that make you cringe when you hear a story like that? Do you think that that's just gonna continue to play into the reputation that the National Hockey League might have here as like kind of a garage ba- uh, garage? Uh, Garage League? Yeah, I think that that was as big an error as I've seen the league make. You're talking about when they broadcast the game, there was basically the scoreboard? Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh my God! And that uh, terrible commentary. Yep, <clears throat> it was really, really Mickey Mouse and very, very bad. A lot of the American broadcasts are, are extremely weak, and I suppose that has to do with weak markets, weak television markets for the game. But they certainly don't do them themselves any favors with uh, with some of that broadcast operation, and so it does end up with a bad reputation. Now you have the general managers uh, meeting and talking about more changes that they might make to the game. And they're trying to figure out what to do with the red line, and they're talking about putting in something called the Bowman line, which is a basically the ringette line, which would be right at the top of the circles. And you would have to get out to that Bowman line and pass it before you could make a long, long pass up right. or pass center. It used to be offside in the old days of hockey. But if they put in two more lines in hockey on a on an ice surface, a plain surface that already bewilders and baffles everyone who has never played the game. Uh, how are you going to possibly appeal to new viewers who are trying to understand a game that at times is incomprehensible to, to even those of us who have been around it all our lives? For example, I have uh, played and coached and covered hockey now for 57 years or something like that. I still don't know what is an icing and what isn't an icing. I mean, I know what the rule is, and I know what I would call an icing, but some of those icings that are waved off are absolutely baffling to me. Very conveniently so, waved off at times, too. And you wonder, <laughs> wait a minute, <laughs> that wasn't icing? Why not? Because there's only a minute left. Uh, the sports guests are here with uh, Roy McGregor, the wonderful author of a fabulous book called Wayne Gretzky's Ghosts and Other Tales from a Lifetime of Hockey. Uh, a lifetime of hockey means you've, you've been around for many changes to the game, as you mentioned, and many, many changes to the way it's covered. And I mentioned that, uh, or maybe I haven't yet, that you can be found on Twitter at Roy. Mac G and I sort of compare you in a way to a guest that we've had, uh, a baseball American baseball writer named Jane Levy, who who reminds me of you in a sense and in, in your views and and the way that you write and and the experiences that you've had and the perspective games that you cover. She uh, she won't she won't do Twitter at all. 140 characters just isn't enough for her. I've seen that you you're there, but not really. You don't you don't say a whole lot. Have you struggled with the? the Twitter era of trying to say something in these 140 characters and make it meaningful? Uh, probably. I mean, I don't understand what the fuss is about. I, you you get on Twitter and somebody's telling you who's first on the ice or who just had a shot. Who cares? <laughs> but that's me. I uh, use it to uh, promote uh, my own pieces during the day because that's what my newspaper wants us to do. I use it sometimes to retweet something that uh, somebody I admire has said, something very insightful. I certainly think that it has a great value in many, many instances, uh, such as the value that we saw during the Arab Spring, for example, or for other uh, things such as disasters that are happening and that coverage is very difficult to get to. I don't really care what somebody's eating. I don't really care what restaurant they're going to. I don't really care who somebody says is sitting two seats away from me and, oh, golly gee, isn't that amazing? But that's the detritus that you get, I think, when you when you allow people to basically... Uh, well, I won't use the word masturbate, I guess, but uh, basically uh, say whatever is floating through their minds, a lot of which should not be said. Maybe another change uh, is I'm looking at the back jacket of your book here, a great picture of yourself, a little bit of a bio, and then it says, also available as an ebook. 
What do you think about e-books and uh, reading books and newspapers on devices like the iPad? Do you think that that's a potential for newspapers especially to maybe have a little bit of a, a renaissance with, the, with this new technology? Well, it has to be. I mean, we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to make money from it. But we're not blind. We can see what's happening. And whether you're talking book publishing or newspaper publishing, it's it's very important. But I think that there's a generational thing that has happened. And and the best example I can think of is um, we have a young person at the Globe and Mail called James Myrtle. And he's very active on uh, Twitter and blogging and, uh, and, and the web. And uh, we were covering a game together at one point, and there was this little incident that came up. And uh, I can't remember what it was, but I said something later in the day. We should, there should be something. Something had gone on the web about it. And then I, later in the day, I said we should. You know, there should be a piece, little piece in the paper on that. And he, he looked at me with some surprise, saying, "But it's, but it's already been up for five hours." So it, I realized at that moment that for James Myrtle, you know, the primary. Uh, carrier of information that uh, he is interested in would be things like uh, Twitter and blogging and, the, of course, the web and our, our web page at Global Mail Sports. And the newspaper would almost be an afterthought. So in my case, uh, I think only about the newspaper, and then every once in a while it occurs to me that something should be on the web or, or somebody should do a blog or tweet about it. So for for me, the social media is the afterthought. So you, he's about 30 years of age, and I'm in my early 60s. So I think throughout uh, writing, reporting, and journalism, you're going to find that there is that gap. There's not much you can do about it except <laughs> wait for the old buggers to go away, but it's there. And uh, it's it's uh, going to take a long time, this transformation, but it's certainly going to happen. In terms of e-books, the time will come not too long from now where more e-books are being sold than, than uh, what we would call regular books. But there still will be that that customer out there that wants the hard copy to hold, who wants to fold back the pages, who wants to lie it on his or her chest while they're out suntanning, who wants to spill drinks on it, who wants to hand it on, and who wants to keep it on a shelf. So that's going to survive as well, but less and less so. You know, I love e-books. The only thing that I don't like about them, and I, this is a problem I don't even know how to solve, is I could never ask an author to autograph that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? they'll, they'll solve that soon. There'll be an electronic <laughs> autograph. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, you know, I was... Um, you know, I I have a lot of experience in Canada. My brother uh, is a Division One hockey player at Yale now, and he's spent you know, a lot of his development just across the border and various clinics and things like that. And I, I, I like to think I'm an educated American when it comes to Canada. And I was reading in your bio earlier some of the many accomplishments that you've had. And one of them that really, really sticks out is that you were named an officer in the Order of Canada. And I had to ask my lawyer, the great Rob Wise of Wise Law Canada, um, I had to ask him to just clarify what that means a little bit. And I want, I want to read you what he says. And he said that it's the highest honor, and of course he spelled that with a U, in Canada. And he mentioned that some of the other governor generals are Lord Stanley. And uh, I just wonder, what does it mean to know that you've been uh, uttered in the same breath as someone who probably means as much to us in the hockey world as Lord Stanley does? What does it mean to you, someone born and raised in Canada, to have been named an officer in the Order of Canada? Well, it means a lot. I like it, but it's really 
demonstrative of Canada being caught between the, the old mother country, England, or or France as well, and uh, the United States of today. And so that you have the honor system in, in England where you have Paul McCarthy and Mick Jagger and, and all those people becoming Sir Paul and right. Sir Mick and Sir Elton. And so Canada has this honor system in which you're given a little pin to wear and made an officer in the Order of Canada, but you don't get knighted or anything. You don't call you Sir or anything like that. And in America, there's no real equivalent, except that there are certain uh, high civilian honors that uh, the president does bestow as well. So it's up there. The thing about the Order of Canada is you can get in every different category. You can get it for being a doctor. You can get it for being a humanitarian. You can get it for being a uh, a hockey star. or You can get it for being a journalist once in a while. Or you can get it for being something that no one ever noticed except for those people around you that you did help. And those are probably the people who deserve it most. What perks does it carry? None. None. <laughs> None. Okay, that's an interesting answer. I thought maybe you'd at least say, well, I get, don't have to wait in restaurants anymore, something like that. <laughs> I, th- I would think maybe if I open a restaurant in Canada, I might have the um, the Order of Canada section. where I maybe. Would... <laughs> no, no, we're too egalitarian here. We, we, uh, we wouldn't have anything like that. <laughs> the sportscasters are here with... Uh, the great Roy McGregor, the author of our uh, book club book of the month for March, Wayne Gretzky's Ghost and Other Tales from a Lifetime of Hockey. We're pretty much closing up our time, sadly, here with Mr. McGregor today. Uh, let's leave, let's get out of here on this. Uh, first of all, I want to I want to get a, a Stanley Cup pick from you for this season, and um, I just want to know uh, as as you as you continue your career here, what, what what else do you what else do you hope to accomplish in a life of accomplishments? All right, we're going to deal with the Stanley Cup first. Okay. I was saying to somebody the other night, I said, uh, you know, you, it's become so absolutely unpredictable. If you look back over the last uh, number of years, you know, who saw Boston Bruins going to the Stanley Cup last year? They, uh, Both Julian and general manager Shirelli believed that they were going to be fired at the end of the first round only a year ago when it looked like Montreal was going to do them in. So who saw Tampa coming? Who saw Carolina coming? Uh, they, they they creep up, and uh, they surprise you. And I actually said that the team that I would keep an eye on right now is the Buffalo Sabres. I love it. And I said that because of the way they've played lately, and when Miller is at the top of his game, he's right up there with the very best of them. Now, I, I, I don't have any insight at all any more than anyone else does but uh, that that's a team that interests me if they get into the playoffs that could do some tremendous damage i don't see ottawa going very far um if they even are able to hang on i don't think that uh, i don't know what's going to happen in vancouver there doesn't seem to be that much faith in the goaltender good as he is robert Luongo, he is excellent when he's on his game if he if he got it all together they could go all the way and uh, another team that uh, I think is uh, needs watching, careful watching, and deserves it is Nashville. Mm. What did you think of uh, Radulov coming back? 
That's kind of sleazy, didn't you think? Yeah, I did. I mean, God, yeah. how grimy can you get? You know, we've I've all we've all been having these concerns about Russians, and it's somewhat stigmatized. You know, the brooding, moody, enigmatic uh, Russian. It's become a bit of a cliche, but there's been so many examples. Kovalev here in Ottawa, for example, of people getting big money, five million a year, and absolutely dogging it, yashing the situation he got into in Ottawa. And and now you have this kid who, even before he he, he got his million out of the NHL had uh, buggered off to make millions in the KHL and then wants to just come back to suddenly be an NHL star and the NHL opens its arms and receives them happily. Now, no thanks. Goes Stay to show away. how much winning means, right? Yeah. So, okay, so how about part B of that last question? That what, we're about, gonna get what I'm going to do? Well, I'd like to do things apart from uh, hockey for sure. I'm working on a book about canoeing right now and uh, got all kinds of ideas. I also do a kid series of uh, books called The Screech Owls, which is about a a Kiwi team that goes around the world solving mysteries and murders. Preposterous as that sounds, I don't care what it sounds like. Kids love them, and I'm going to do five more of those. I've got 20, 23 out now, maybe 24, and I'm going to do five more for sure. It's like goosebumps for hockey. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Well, listen, this has been an, an absolute honor, just right from the beginning, just being able to, to get a copy of the book and being able to read it and take this journey with you through your lifetime of hockey and then being able to to talk to you on this podcast for the, the last thirty minutes, it couldn't mean more to us. And and all I can say is thank you for for the wonderful stories and for the time today. And uh, I hope we can do it again sometime, or maybe we can just uh, get sure. a little deeper into some of these hockey issues and uh, or whatever you'd like. And uh, by then, I'll have read your book on Tom Thompson, and maybe we can <laughs> get into that a little bit more because I want to know why Gord Downey was so excited to see him. Uh, travel and pastor as i said he was pretty sure it was him but uh that's great thank you very much I, I really thank you steve the, time. the owner's all mine okay we'll talk soon then yep thank Bye-bye. you i said off the top that we were excited to have a pack show today a stack show it turned out to be that. I want to thank our guest Jonah Carey from Grantland, Tim Layden from SportsIllustrated.com, and Roy McGregor from the Globe and Mail, a national newspaper of Canada. All right, one last piece of business. Well, really, two last pieces of business for this week. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, Facebook.com/sportscasters. You can follow us on Twitter where we are at sports underscore casters. You can email us, especially if you want to cop of that fitness book, uh, you can email us at thesportscasters at gmail.com. We have two blogs running, which we use occasionally here and there, thesportscasters.blogspot.com and thesportscasters.tumblr.com. You can also go to our website, www.sports-casters.com, where you can find all this information. Uh, I will be uh, more and more a bigger presence on ProPlayerInsiders.com. Uh, We'll be writing about the Saints there and also writing a Monday morning quarterback-style column there each week. I'm also going to the draft, Don, in a couple of weeks on their dollar, so I'm looking forward to that. Sweet. You can find this podcast. Maybe you're listening to this podcast right now on Pro Player Insiders. Uh, More importantly, don't forget our partners at Cold Hard Football Facts and FootballNation.com. Next week, we will debut a second podcast uh, in the uh, Sportscasters family, one that will 
center around the National Football League. I mentioned Jane Levy should join us next week. Looking forward to that. And uh, that leads us to our last piece of business, which is pick four. I went three and one. I am having a great season two at pick four. I'm 31 and 18 in season two. I won Florida over Marquette 68 to 58. It was exactly what I thought. Florida was just had a better tournament than Marquette and they played a better game than Marquette. Unfortunately, they did not quite make the final four. I also had Ohio State over Cincinnati in the Battle of Ohio. That was pretty easy, 81-66, Ohio State, who is in the final four. And I also won Kentucky over Indiana, our game of the week, 102-90. Look at Kentucky's going to win that tournament pretty easily, right? It sure looks that way, yeah. Yeah, they just they just seem way better than everyone. Uh, my one and only loss was uh, Kansas just edged out North Carolina State. 60-57, to 57. and what was, for Don and I, three really close losses. Yeah. Don went 2-2 two and two to improve his record to 20-30. and 30. He won the game of the week as well, Kentucky over Indiana. Easily won his host choice homer pick of Buffalo over Montreal, 3 to nothing. His losses couldn't have been closer. He had Wisconsin over Syracuse. He missed that one, 64-63. Wisconsin had the ball at the end of the game with a chance to win it. They had a timeout in their pocket, decided not to use it for they're some saving reason. It. Yeah, they're saving it. Saving it for what? I don't know. And uh, they fell 64-63, as I said. And he boldly predicted that North Carolina would lose to Ohio. Again, Ohio had the ball with a chance to win the game. They didn't. The game went to overtime, and I don't think they scored in the overtime. <laughs> Maybe one basket. Yeah. UNC won that one, 73-65 before losing the next day to Kansas in what was another long scoring drought after a tie. They were tied with about six minutes left and didn't get another point the rest of the game. And Kansas is in the frozen four, which lead, or final four, <laughs> which leads us to our game of the week, Don. Yeah, the game of the week this week is Ohio State versus Kansas. Uh, that's a Saturday game, 849 on CBS. Give me Kansas. Uh, they eked one out. Maybe they learned their lesson. <laughs> this game is the game of the week over... Louisville and Kentucky because it seems like we would have just both picked Kentucky, Kentucky because yeah. they just seem like the best team. I say that it starts at 849. The first game starts at 609, and this game will start 30 minutes after that. So approximately 849 is what uh, the 30 NCAA. minutes after the other one ends. Right. Right. So that means I'm going to take Ohio State then. You're taking Kansas? Sure. I'm going to take Ohio State. They it's really pretty safe bets about against what I picked. They were impressive last week. And um, it's a battle of number twos. It really could go either way, but I think I'm gonna. I guess what you're gonna hear in a second is I'm gonna predict an Ohio State versus Kentucky final. All right, my host choice this week. I I need to gain some ground here, so I'm gonna take what I hope is a gimme game. I got uh, the Bulls at home over the Pistons on Friday at eight o'clock. Bulls are something like twenty and five at home. The Pistons are just not a good team. Uh, Last time I did this, though, I think it was the Heat who were like 20-1 and one at home, and uh, they lost. Right. <laughs> so my gimme picks are never that. So, But give me the Bulls on Friday. I got a basketball game for my host choice, too. Maybe not quite as much of a gimme, but it's I'm going to take the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder over the Los Angeles Lakers in Los Angeles on Thursday, the 29th at 10.30 on TNT. The Lakers are the home team there, which maybe gives them an edge, but I just caught some of... Oklahoma City traveling to Miami and destroying the Heat. Yeah. And uh, that just really impressed me. I think Oklahoma City is the team to beat in the NBA this year, and that'd be a really cool champion. 
I think, if if they could win it. And if anyone wins it over the Heat, who, by the way, Don, are they a little bit more likable this week, having actually stood up for something and taken that team photo with the hoodies to stand up for the poor kid that was innocently shot? Oh, yeah, yeah. What sure. do you think about that? Does that make them a little bit more likable? Yeah, and they've been quiet this year. I think the fact that they were kind of uh, embarrassing last year and the uh, strike kind of overshadowing overshadowing them has uh, they kind of flown under the radar. I mean, they've just kind of gone about their business this year. So I'm not going to say I'm rooting for them or anything, but they're definitely not as hateable as they were in the past. Right. My worldwide leader pick this week is the other basketball game, Louisville at Kentucky, or not at, but versus Kentucky. We said earlier, 609 on CBS. Give me Kentucky. Yep, I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm, I got Kentucky too. If I could pick another game, I'd pick Kentucky to beat anyone in the national championship game. I thought about making that pick, but I thought it was a little cheap. But <laughs> look at they're the best team in the tournament. They've been the best team in the tournament since the day that it started. They've been the best team in the tournament before it started. They've only lost one game since they lost on December 10th to Indiana. They're basically unbeatable. And I don't think Louisville, who's in the lowest seed left in the tournament as a number four, is going to be the team to beat them. But they're, it scares me a little bit. They're from the same state. Yeah, They're rivals. Yeah, sure. Rick Pitino is the former coach of Kentucky. So it's a good a, story. I'm a little scared because it would be a story yeah. if they beat them. But I still, if I'm betting, and in a sense I am here, I'm going to put my money on Kentucky. All right, my bold prediction this week, I'm again going uh, back to the homer well. Uh, the Sabres could easily be in eighth place tonight, or technically they just have to win the game and they're in eighth place all alone. I'm going to say by the next podcast, which gives them three games against Washington tonight, Pittsburgh, and Toronto, I will say the Sabres are in seventh place, meaning that someone – like Ottawa, or right, and that's the thing is the Sabers don't necessarily control their own destiny there. Not for seven, no. right? So it, need... it's bold, but that's why we lose these picks, <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, my bold prediction is maybe slightly less bold this week than what Don is doing. Steven Stamkos scored his fifty-third goal, set a new standard in the Tampa Bay Lightning organization. That's a record there. Yeah, like Kevin had fifty-two. Yeah. I, I know he's knew he was a big point guy. I never really. I, forgot he had 52 goals. I'm going to say that Evgeny Malkin, by the time we start the podcast, will join Stammer in the 50-goal club. He's at 46 right now, which means he needs to score four goals in the next four games, two against uh, Islanders. the Islanders, one against the Sabres. And I don't remember the fourth yeah, I don't one, remember but either. he's got four games Philly, to do it. Philly, right? It's a little bit over what his pace is now, and these goals get harder and harder to score as you get closer and closer to a number like 50. Plus Crosby's back, so they play a ton of games on the stretch. We looked it up. They al- they al- actually also have a game Pittsburgh does on Tuesday while we'll be podcasting. Right, so, so they have five, five games, games in eight days. Now. That's rough. And then, yeah, that's a rough stretch. All right, that's going to do it for today. Again, I want to thank our guests Jonah Carey, Tim Layden, and Roy McGregor. Hopefully, when we join you next time, we're going to have an answer on what the book club book of the month is. If there's two, if there's one, or if there's none and we need to think of something different <laughs> uh also we expect jane levy to join us on the show we're looking forward to that don you can cue the hip all right